Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Good morning, everyone. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Whoa, getting chilly down here in central Otago. There's snow on the hills. And I'm sitting in my makeshift studio with my woolly hat on, rugged up, wishing I had a hottie. My goodness, it's getting cold. And um, and I quite like the cold, I've got to say, because uh, it makes you feel good and you can always wrap up heat. I don't know what you do when it gets hot and you just get hot. And you can't sort of seem to escape it. Got a great show uh, this morning for everyone. Oliver Hartwich, he's with the New Zealand Initiative, uh, a thinker, a think tank, and writes policy, writes what government should be doing, uh, always from a economic point of view, always rational and reasoned, uh, always favouring people's power over government power, which is to say uh, the free market. But he's written the most interesting piece, which we're going to be discussing today, which is from titled From God's Own to the Devil's Playground, and just how everything, wherever you look, overwhelmingly so, Everything that government does has deteriorated so dramatically, just fallen off a cliff. And it was like we were sliding and then COVID hit and then we went over the precipice. And it's sort of hard to keep up, hard to process, hard to deal with. So we've got Oliver on and you'll enjoy him. And then we have the wonderful Alison Paulet, who is... Here's a new word for me, a mycologist. She studies fungi. And not just studies fungi, but makes a profession out of writing about fungi, beautiful books, and giving seminars, and traveling the world, uh, giving lectures at universities. And what what a fabulous world. How wonderful is nature that... These, well, they're not plants, as we learn, but these fungi work symbiotically with other plants and through the soil. 
are providing nutrients to trees and other plants, breaking down organic matter, making our soil rich and nutritious. And you have to ask yourself, and indeed we ask Alison, what it all means when we have industrial farm production and sort of treat the soil as inert rather than as this living ecosystem. Fascinating interview. Stay tuned, stay sharp. Flick us a text, 2057. Love to hear from you. And send me an email, inbox at radiocheck.radio. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, Flick us a text, 2057, send us an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Well, we've got a wonderful guest coming up. She, Alison Poulet, I hope I did that right. I always struggle with surnames. Why don't people just be called Smith and Brown and I could manage, or Jones, but Poulet, Alison Poulet, a wonderful surname. She does the most beautiful books that you can imagine. Beautiful photography, just wonderful. And beautiful words to go with the book about a beautiful subject. Alison, good morning. Good morning, Rodney. And I love that you think fungi so beautiful. Oh, what did I do? Oh, I think they're beautiful. Yes, but I know so little about them. But I've got a couple of questions to begin with, just before we get into the nuts and bolts. Fungus, 
singular? Yeah. Fungi or fungi? Well, I guess if, if you want to speak biological Latin, it's fungi, and America's, Americans send, tend to say fungi, but fungi, 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 we all know we're talking about the same thing. That's what matters most of all. Mm. No, I think they're beautiful because you'll appreciate I'm living in Otago and you go for a walk uh, t- down here. We have beach forests, and I don't know the names, but you see the most beautiful fungi, just unimaginable but what i love with your books is you capture that close up with a wonderful lens and they just i mean they look a miracle they are they're they're absolute miracles they're forests full of miracles and i absolutely agree with you and you're so fortunate to have those wonderful nothophagus forests which is so Mm. rich with such a great diversity of fungi well we're going to cover quite a lot of this but first of all how did you get a job writing and studying fungi? Look, it really started with the curiosity and fascination of childhood. I mean, crawling around in the Australian bush, just noticing all these amazing things on the forest floor. So whether it was sundews or whether it was beetles or orchids all of it was fascinating to me, but the fungi held a particular kind of allure. Oh, so the love, the love of fungi, fungi, fungus goes right back to being a child. Absolutely. And and they were part of this whole thing that today we call ecology. Yes. But that they, they I mean, so it was all of interest, whether it was birds or trees or mosses or bright, whatever. But the fungi held a particular kind of allure. And I think it was because they were. They seemed so inexplicable. You know, it was obvious they mm. weren't a- animals for a long time. They were thought of as plants, but they weren't really very much like plants other than the fact that they were sitting still. But they just, this ephemerality, they were there and they were gone. They're so short-lived, bizarre forms that went beyond just, the, you know, the classic cap and stalk style umbrella-shaped mushroom. There's all these other sort of seemingly inexplicable forms. So How interesting that it was way back then because I think Albert Einstein got given a compass. And it fascinated him how it always pointed north and he couldn't understand it. And that childhood fascination stayed with him all those years. And here you are, because we do we do have that wonderful curiosity as children, but somehow you and Albert Einstein kept yours, <laughs> but the rest of us lose it. I think it's a very generous comparison, but <laughs> Wow, you you're the you're the, um, you know, Albert Einstein was physics, and here you are in the ecological botanical world. So here you were as a child, fascinated by this. You're going to school, and you kept up your interests through school and presumably on to university. Indeed, and my equivalent of Einstein's compass was a loop or a magnifier. And that, you know, you can still buy them today for 10 or 15 bucks. You know, they're, they're, they're re- relatively cheap and they just 
open up new worlds. So to be able to see something 10 times magnified, and it wasn't just mushrooms, it might have been a beetle or something else, but that just opened up microcosms of absolute delight mm. and wonder. And as you say, the aesthetics and beauty and bizarreness led me to their science because I wanted to know, you know, I could see they were beautiful and bizarre, but I wanted to know what are they doing? Surely they're not just some crazy decorations on the forest floor. They must be actually doing something more important than that. So that's what But it was it was fungi, not say, because beetles look beautiful under a magnifying glass and they wiggle, but it was the fungi <laughs> that fascinated you. Well, all I mean, my first job as a scientist was actually looking at the mouthparts of beetle larvae to identify them. So mm -hmm. I actually did, you know, start out with what we call invertebrates or those spineless things, but it's all connected, Rodney. Like it's not that it's not that fungi are some favorite group of organisms like a fancier might like mm. orchids or cacti or poodles or whatever. It's more that I wanted to know what they were doing, and that's different to what fungi are doing. That's different to sort of collecting them because like swap cards or something. And I sort of soon came to realise that they were pretty much holding forests together. They were underpinning the mm. function of pretty much every terrestrial ecosystem on the planet. But the thing is you couldn't study this at university. We could only do a very generalised, you know, ecology and fungi didn't come into it. Maybe it's a little different in New Zealand, but here in Australia you still can't study mycology, that is the science of fungi, at an undergraduate level. We might get the odd lecture in a more generalised biological sciences or environmental sciences degree, but mycology hasn't actually made it onto the agenda of our, you know, curricula at our universities. I mean, I imagine it could be the same in New Zealand. Oh, I'm sure it is. Yes, I'm sure that's true that, you know, at undergraduate level, you might get a couple of lectures on it. But Absolutely. It, you, 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 funny enough, Funnily enough, I have a degree in botany and zoology. Same. <laughs> there you go. So, um, and I, I had that same fascination with how it all connected together and to a sort of superorganism. Indeed, yeah. And so we know so much more than we did even 30, 40 years ago about the interconnection yeah, look, we've we've known about them for a long, long time, but the extent or the significance mm. or the detail of those is only just starting to be recognised. So you did your university work and you studied the mouthparts of beetle <laughs> larva to hook them to to able, I guess, to identify the larva with the adult beetle. Yeah, and, and but you're now this sort of wonderful world traveller popularising and writing these beautiful coffee table books that you could leave on your coffee table and you're sort of freelancing, I guess, are you? I am. Look, I freelance for, yeah, look, look nearly, nearly three decades, so a long time. But mm. I think to convey the complexities of the science and the abstract nature of something that has been largely overlooked within the biological sciences. Or well, let's get into that. You're on uh, Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we're doing some real talk about fungi. What is a – I've got to make my mind up what I'm to say, fungi, 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 fungi. What, what, is, what is a fungus? <laughs> Wonderful question. And it, you know what, Rodney? It's a really hard one to answer because – 
we answer what this question often by saying what they're not rather than what they are because people have these two reference points to understand nature and that is animals and plants the fungi have really come into our equation of what we understand as being biodiversity or nature or the environment so they're not plants they're not animals they're fungi and they share characteristics with both animals and plants but they're very very different organisms if i was to define it Technically, we'd say it's a eukaryotic heterotroph, but that won't mean much to most people who aren't biologists or haven't studied science in some way. So how they're similar to plants is that they occupy similar habitats. They have connections with plants. They're typically stationary. But how they're actually built, what they're made of, something called chitin, C-H-I-T-I-N, and also the way they get their nutrition, that is through digestion, makes them actually more like animals than plants. So there's this horrible clunky definition, eukaryotic heterotrophs, but if you think of it this way, they're, they're different to both plants and animals, but they're more closely related to animals in terms of what they're made of and how they actually get their food. They don't photosynthesize like plants. They don't have chlorophyll. They don't use the sun. They secrete enzymes, just like we do inside our bodies, but they do it outside their bodies. They secrete enzymes directly into the environment, into the organic matter in which they're sitting, and they absorb what they need for that, what we call external digestion. And so it's so a they great must they they must be very, very old. I mean, they must have they must go back to the very start of life. Look, we know they at least go back to the Devonian, so 500 million years ago when life on land started to appear and diversify. So they are certainly very successful organisms and they've, you know, in that sense that they've been around a very long time, fairly unchanged in many ways. And we think among those fungi that could have been the earliest were the lichens, with every lichen, of course, being a fungus, not a plant. It's, a, it's actually a symbiosis of a fungus and an alga together. But we think these were some of the first terrestrial fungi that broke down those primeval rocks, created the first soils that then allowed for the succession of plants and, and life to evolve on My land. You're right, very, very old, very diverse, very successful. And there must be a remarkable number of species which I would imagine we're only dimly perceiving. You're right. And look, we probably, we don't really know, but we are many decades, maybe even a century behind the knowledge of plants. Like we're just starting to get a sense of the diversity of fungi, how many are out there. But in Australia, and I'm guessing in New Zealand too, most fungi are probably still yet to be named. You know, we don't often come across a tree these days that doesn't have a name. We've sort of got a pretty good idea of what woody species are out there, but all the time, particularly now with the rise of molecular mycology where they're looking at genes, the, we're discovering new species daily, just astonishing. And what's the life cycle of a, of a fungus? Okay, so the basic reproductive unit of a fungus is something called a spore. So it's a bit like the equivalent of a seed in plants, although it's a bit different again in that it's microscopic, it doesn't have a food supply like a seed does, so it's likely to be relatively short-lived. So this tiny spore, if it finds exactly the right combination of conditions in terms of the moisture, the nutrient supply, the temperature, the pH, all these things to germinate, it sends out a long translucent cell called a hypha. And this hypha's got two very special talents. It can divide and it can fuse. So it divides, so two become four onwards like that. 
It moves through the soil looking for food. It's food, of course, being the organic matter in soil, like the sticks and leaves and bark that fall directly from trees and other plants. And then this the hyphae collectively form what's known as the fungus mycelium. So there's all these new terms that are unfamiliar to many people, but they're starting to become part of our lingo. And this mycelium, that's the actual fungus organism, the living, growing, feeding part of the fungus. And when we see that mushroom pop up, that's just the organ of the organism, so to speak. It's just the reproductive structure or the sporophore or the sporing body that contains the spores. And when that reproductive structure appears as a puffball or a mushroom or a coral above the surface of the earth, when it's mature, it then releases its spores to the wind and that cycle begins again. Did they have sex? <laughs> so <laughs> fungi sort of really confound our, our notion of, of sex, of all of these things by which we understand life. So fungi are, are sexual and asexual. We don't refer to fungus sexes like we do, you know, male and female for plants and animals. We refer to fungus mating types, and certainly many of them have two mating types, but some of them have multiple mating types. We know some have even tens of thousands of mating types. So it's really interesting, Rodney, because all these sort of premises on which we understand life, animals and plants, are based on this notion of two sexes, on a, a fixed lifespan of bounded organisms, but fungi suddenly wobble or topple all of those, I guess, those dichotomies and those ways we understand nature. And I think if we had used the fungus mycelium as the prototype for what nature is rather than a plant or an animal, we'd have a much broader way of thinking about life, not just nature, but about life in general, including human societies. And they don't, you're suggesting in that, that while you start with a spore and it grows, it doesn't necessarily die the original plant. The original fungus. So yes. plants, yeah. Yeah. So sorry, sorry. they don't yeah, I, I I shouldn't have said plant. But yes, that, that original fungus, does it sort of live under the ground potentially exactly. forever? It, it, it's, that's absolutely spot on. So long as it's got a food source. Wow. I know. And this is where, you know, we talk about a tree that might have a lifespan of 300 years. You know, we homo sapiens might have an average lifespan of, what, 83 years in the, in the first world. But the concept that something can potentially live infinitely so long as it's got food that that sort of as i said that that undermines our, our concept our whole concept of how we understand life and that's why to me fungi are so compelling because they challenge a whole lot of structures and frameworks that we've been given to understand what nature is but fungi confound oh, all the time so they, they and, can and, and the, i know lichen that you see on a rock which is a fungus and an algae joined together or working together, they can be very old, can't they? Indeed, absolutely. And, you know, that some of them in the, you know, we call them extremophiles or lovers of the extremes. And those that live in, you know, Arctic environments or very extreme environments, we might see something that's the size of a, a dinner plate on a rock or a log, but it could in fact be, you know, decades old. So very slow growing. They're basically taking the tiniest bit of nutrition from the mists that waft wafting over of them. Oh, oh, sorry, wafting over them. So they they yeah, very slow growing, very adapted to extremes, very old, very ancient, but also remarkably resilient and resourceful mm. because when you combine two talents, you've got the talents of a fungus and an alga together, you've got a double set of of survival mechanisms really. 
because the algae can photosynthesize. Exactly. And the fungus can take what moisture and nutrition. Exactly. From the substrate. That's spot and, on, or even from the air. Yeah. And and wow, and presumably fungi have very specific niches or conditions that they need, that they're very specific to maybe a host or to the area. Is that the case or are they pretty easygoing? Well, like animals and plants, it's the case for some but not for others. So you've got some that are very, very host-specific, like you say. things You might have heard of the cordyceps. These fungi parasitize or invade the body of an invertebrate, and that, that's a very particular invertebrate. It's this, it's this genus of beetle or that genus of stick insect. Or So some are very host-specific, while others are what we call generalists. So there's some fungi that can survive on, they grow in wood, and they can grow in wood of of conifers, of broadleaf trees, of a great range of, of different types of plant species. So just like animals and plants, where some are very, very particular about their habitat choices and their tolerances to different conditions, some fungi like that. We know there's a species over here growing on Kangaroo Island in Australia called the hidden pink gill. And the only place it lives is on large sheets of well-rotted sugar, sugar gum bark. So it doesn't want a stick or a log or a branch of another. It's the only place it grows. I mean, perhaps as we survey them more, we might find it in other habitats, but that one is very species-specific. Mm. Where there's other fungi, you might have heard of the honey fungus. And this particular one, it's why it's so successful and times can become quite invasive, is that it's not picky about what it invades. So it will grow in all kinds of wood of different sizes, ages. So just like animals and plants, you'll get that whole spectrum of very sensitive ones and very particular particular ones, and then you'll get your generalists as well. And are they found everywhere? Pretty much, Rodney. You, if, you, if you look carefully, well, maybe you shouldn't. They, they appear in the armpits and between the toes of Homo sapiens. Yeah, I know about the ones between your toes. Don't tell me. Don't get me started. I mean, they also appear in marine ecosystems. They grow in freshwater ecosystems. They grow in the extremes of, of the Antarctic. But most fungi grow in soil or in wood, and particularly in wet forests. So your wonderful nothophagus and other types of forests that you have in New Zealand. But we also find fungi in desert systems, in sand dunes, in grassland systems. So they're ubiquitous, they're widespread, they're diverse, and they can occupy pretty much, yeah, pretty much most habitat types. The only ones they don't like are ones that are really highly disturbed. So think of like industrial agricultural systems where we constantly mm. till and disturb the soil and break up that fungus mycelium, they're the sort of systems where we don't tend to find fungi. And we witness, I assume, the reproductive part of the fungus. That's right, and that's exactly what the mushroom is or the bracket fungus or the puffball, that structure or sporophore or sporing body, that's just the container for the spores. So that's what I'm saying, that mycelium. I'm sure you've seen that, Rodney, when you've yeah. scratched around in the compost or the leaf litter, that, that cobwebby tapestry or matrix, that's the actual fungus organism. But for most of us, most of the time, that's 
It's out of our thinking because it's hidden beneath the soil. We don't tend to, you know, often turn over soil or leaf litter. We only become aware of them when we see that mushroom appear above the surface. So going through the litter and going through the, um, presumably the soil, is the, I guess, multiple fungi. Absolutely. And, and then when they reproduce, they pop up like a, a a thing that you see, but um, multiple fungi are intertwined through the litter, say thinking of a beach forest, they're intertwined through that litter. Absolutely. And many of them are actually directly connected to the root system of the nothophagus, of the native beach. So they mm. form like a sheath what we call an ectomycorrhizal symbiosis. So ecto means external. It's an external sheath on the root of the nothophagus. Myco means fungus. Rhizal means root. Symbiosis means alliance. So many of those fungi are actually directly locked onto the root system, expanding out that root system of the nothophagus, helping it access water, breaking down organic matter, releasing the nutrients and sending those back to the tree. And in return, the tree gives the fungus a lovely feed of sugars that it produces through photosynthesis. So there's likely to be dozens, if not hundreds, possibly even thousands of species all interconnected in that system. Truly amazing. And they are actually connected at the cellular level? Absolutely. So that what, what you're finding is that the so a hypha is one long individual cell, but the hypha or hyphae plural collectively form that fungus mycelium. And it forms, as I say, the sheath around the root system of the plant and expands that out. And some of these actually penetrate the cortical cells of the plant root and enter into the cell itself and form a little structure that we refer to as an arbuscle. It's got the same root word as arbor, as in tree, because it has the form or shape of a tree. And that's the site of nutrient exchange between the plant and the fungus. So it is actually happening not just cellular level, but it's intracellular. It's actually happening with inside the cells of some plants, this relationship. So that relationship goes back before there were beech trees sort of thing, right? This is a very ancient relationship that uh, fungi have had with plants. Yeah, look, it probably started with the conifers. So, you know, and then we had, we had the conifer trees. Oh, of course, because you get those toadstools and that under conifers, don't you? Absolutely. And then we had the rise of the flowering plants or the broadleaf trees alongside the insects and other vectors that helped them distribute. But so we, we think, you know, it goes back. We know, we know some of the earliest symbioses probably were the lichens, but certainly these mycorrhizal or root fungus relationships. I mean, these early plants, their, their root systems weren't specialised enough or vast enough to actually extract enough nutrients from those primeval soils. So without the fungi that are much, much finer, that can penetrate all those interstitial spaces, those tiny gaps between the particles of dirt and sand, without those, those conifers couldn't ever have grown into anything beyond a little bonsai plant because they couldn't get enough nutrition, enough water. They actually need this surrogate root system in effect of the fungus to access those things for them. Mm, now, now for the reason <laughs> I have you on my show. And what's that? Well, it's a question. I'm waiting. So I have become a gardener mm -hmm. and I have Wally Richards 
come on and we talk gardening. And I started out not gardening veggies, but uh, building a nursery. And so I live in Otago and I built a, I'd always wanted to build a fence, like a proper fence. And I built a proper fence to keep out the rabbits. And my plan was to be in a position to plant out mountain beech trees. Wow. And I worked out that you can buy them quite economically when they're small. But as they get bigger, they become exponentially more expensive. Mm -hmm. So I thought to myself, well, I will buy a whole lot of small ones, you know, like um, a foot high, and uh, I will look after them and love them and care for them. And they'll grow and I'll put them in each year into a bigger pot. And then when I'm ready to plant them out and I've got all my sections sorted, I'll plant my beech trees out. So I have been researching how you look after these beautiful beech trees. And I know that they don't like their roots being disturbed. That's the thing that'll kill them. They're pretty hardy, but they don't like their roots being disturbed. But I read somewhere and I've tried to refine it and I can't. You know how you do I do I'm a I'm impatient and I'm a scattergun sort of researcher at night. The kids are in bed and I decide to look something up. And I furiously Googled it and I read it and then I can't find it because I read a very interesting thing that said that beech trees had a symbiotic relationship with a fungus. And I thought, huh, maybe this is something I need to do. So I had it in my mind to hop in my truck and drive to a little beach forest somewhere and scruffle up a little bit of the detritus and lay it around each of my beech trees, wondering if that would, what's the word, inoculate my beech trees. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And, and technically, the answer is yes, you could inoculate them that way. But the thing to think about with a fungus spore that's very different to a, a plant seed is that it's short-lived. It doesn't have a food supply. Most of them probably they don't get that exact right combination of conditions in terms of the soil moisture, temperature, nutrient supply. If it doesn't find that very, very quickly, it's likely to disintegrate. So the closer in proximity that you bring in that organic matter where those the propagules of those fungi are adapted to those conditions, you know, similar salinity or temperature and moisture, the more chance that you could have success in actually inoculating your beech trees. But the thing to keep in mind, your beech trees might already have their partners. They may already have either been inoculated or they were grown with soil that contained those propagules of mycelium and it's actually already got those symbiotic partners present. But if you do bring in all that, that, that organic matter, make sure you bring it very, very, so bring it in from very close by so you've got similar conditions and you also want to be sure you're not bringing in things you don't want, pathogenic things that could actually cause a problem in your garden. Mm. So, yeah, it's just about yeah trying to bring it in as, as from close as by as possible so that those. Because the other thought that I had is that I, I didn't know what was best because I had another thought, which would be to take two or three of my little beech trees in their little container and sit them in a beach forest secretly for a week or two and see if <laughs> they would get inoculated. And then 
bring yeah. them back to my nursery and then the the spores would be spread by the air. I don't know. I and of course you might be quite right. I have to say, I asked the nurseryman about it and he looked at me like, huh? What? You know, fungi? What are you talking about? Because it's not a thing that people think about these days, right? You're absolutely right. And this technique you're describing, I've heard elsewhere of people doing this, taking the the tree into the forest, planting in the forest where you've already got that whole spore bank or mycelial network there, and then at some point removing that tree again and bringing it back to the garden. So this is a technique I've also heard about. Whether it's been successful, I'm still waiting to hear whether that, that <laughs> is actually working. But I, I might I, I might have to get a loop and start, you know, studying this at some length or a microscope or something. But because uh, to me, when I see beech trees planted in someone's section, they look horrifically sad. Really? Okay. Mm. Well, to me, uh, a forest, a beech forest, is this wonderful primeval mossy rotten logs and lichens and fungi and bird life and insects. And there's a beech tree and, yeah. a, and, a, and, a, and a lawn. And I think, well, you've sort of got the tree, but you've not got what it lives in. Does that make sense? Yeah, look, you're, you're really spot on, Rodney. I mean, and I think part of this is how we garden based on an aesthetic of tidiness rather than understanding of ecology. And I know it's a really strong tension. We want gardens to look a particular way. As gardeners, we are designers, you know, we redesign mm. how nature does things. And so what often happens as a result of that is that we remove the organic matter, the leaves and sticks that the trees naturally drop mm. because we see that as untidy. But that's the habitat. That's the food source of the fungi mm. that are of such paramount importance to the trees there. So if we don't leave that food supply on the ground for the fungi that support the tree, it's no surprise the tree is going to look sick. It doesn't have its partners to actually access the nutrients in the water, to drought-proof them, to offer resistance against nematodes and other things that can damage the, the tree's mm. root system. So I think you're well, observing. Well, I'm, I'm determined. I've only got a little spot, and obviously there'll be a size uh, factor, but um, I'm sort of determined to sort of create that because that's to me is what's beautiful. Because what we've done, and I assume it's the same in Australia, but here in New Zealand, and I've been dealing with landscape architects who are wonderful. But and of course the council, they want you to plant natives, but we have this carryover of an English garden, yeah. which is so tidy. Yeah. And so linear. And I think they're beautiful. I think English gardens are stunning. But here they want you to plant natives, you know, because natives are good. And you think, well, that's very well. But we plant the natives as though it was an English garden. <laughs> and these are interesting conflicts. There's always multiple layers of when yeah. we're gardening, isn't there? There's the things that council tells us. There's our own aesthetic. There's trying to understand the ecology. There's trying to support the, you know, the fungi that support the plants. So it's a really challenging thing for a gardener. Well, while I've got my consent, going in i love the council but i'll give a report on them once i if i ever get approval but it's just fascinating to me because you know you i was walking 
um, around a new beautiful, beautiful uh, subdivision mm -hmm. uh, locally, you know, multi-million dollar houses and these beautiful plants and, you know, beech trees everywhere. And I, they struck me as sad because I felt they were yearning. <laughs> I felt they had a yearning for the forest, if you know what I mean. It was yeah. sort of like a, it looked to me like a, a tiger in a cage pacing up and down. And, and, and when you see that vibrant primeval where you feel as though you've stepped back into Jurassic Park or something in a beach forest. And um, we're, here it is sitting in this English lawn. But <laughs> that might be me having an over-fervent uh, imagination. Now, you have got beautiful books, and I want you to tell me about your books. You've got a latest book just out, but I also want you to tell me about all your books and your reason for writing them uh, in each case. Because they're a huge undertaking. Your books are exquisite. Oh, thank you, Ronnie. That's very kind of you to say so. Thank you. No, but they're a work of art, aren't they? They're, they're books that you read. And if it's a good book, you'll think, oh, well, that's a keeper because I like having that around. And then there are books that you read and they go, read that book and you can't remember where you put it or who you lent to it. And then there are beautiful books that you like just looking at. Oh, I'm glad you feel like that. But, yeah, look, certainly the, the very first one that I wrote on fungi was a, a narrative nonfiction account of fungi. By that I mean I talk about the science, you know, particularly the ecology, but the conservation, the cultural histories, evolutionary histories of fungi, but through stories. So I have it's underpinned by a solid foundation of science, but rather than being this sort of undigestible textbook of facts, I wrap a story around each theme to make it, to take the, to really take the reader with me on a journey through a particular country with a particular person, whether that person is a ranger or a First Nations person or a scientist or a forager. So that book was based on a project that I called A Thousand Days in the Forest. So I spent essentially a thousand days in the forests of 12 countries, both with the fungi, but also the followers of those fungi there's this great sweep of people and I tell the story of all these different stories of fungi through these different perspectives whether it's a, a photographer or whether it's a filmmaker or a philosopher or a, a scientist so that was the first book the allure of fungi and the one I've just written the most recent one is similar underground lovers so it's also narrative non-fiction but in the first one I put a series of photo essays in between each written essay and in the more recent one I've just tried to convey those images using words rather than putting those photo essays in. The middle book called Wild Mushrooming, that's the first guide in Australia to edible and toxic fungi. So unlike in Europe where their field guides have this lovely little dinner plate symbol or a, a skull and crossbone symbol next to each fungus, in Australia, and I think it's pretty similar in New Zealand, we don't tend to indicate the edibility, which fungi you can eat, which you can't. So this was the first guide that actually indicates that the edible species, but we always present them alongside their toxic doppelganger. That is the lookalike species they can be confused with. So that one's very much a guide of how to actually identify fungi using diagnostic features, whereas the other ones are more the narrative non-fiction 
presentation of the whole over the whole you know kingdom of fungi, but it but it's not a guide to identifying them. Mm. Have we got uh, a guide to fungi in New Zealand? You've got several. So I've got a couple of your guides, and I believe there's a couple of new ones in the pipeline. So uh, there are, I've got a couple of them. I haven't got them in front of me now, but you've certainly got some beautifully illustrated or photographed guides, lots of knowledge. You've got some fantastic mycologists in New Zealand, particularly Peter Buchanan, who's in Auckland, such a wonderful wealth of knowledge, such a generous sharer of his knowledge. And he's not just one of those scientists who only looks at the, the science and taxonomy of fungi. He also works on a very cultural level, working, for example, with First Nations knowledge, with Māori knowledge of fungi, and looking at those cultural aspects as well. So it's been my absolute pleasure over the years to, to talk to Peter. He shared with me so much about New Zealand's fungi. So you've got some tremendous mycologists there as well. Mm. And uh, for people who wanting to find out about your books, where do they go, Alison? Okay, so they are detailed on my website, which is my full name, alisonpulio.com, but also Unity Books in New Zealand, stock them, and also the publisher websites themselves. So what's known as the CSIRO website or New South Publishing website. They've also got a lot of information and reviews, but, yeah, either through mine or even if you just put my name into a search engine, it, usually directly goes straight to my website or the publisher's websites. But Unity Books also is the place to go to find some copies of those. Well, if you've got a, a, a loved mother or dad or wife or husband who is interested in the natural world and you're thinking, I need to buy them a little present, go and have a look because <laughs> these are beautiful books and they're books that will delight uh, they will be a delight as a present, I promise you, because they are truly beautiful. One of the things I've noticed since I've become a gardener, and I'm talking six months, Alison, so yep. it's not like uh, I am ashamed because my listeners are sick of me saying this. My mother and father were the greatest gardeners I've met. <laughs> wow. They didn't have, if you like, the prettiest gardens, but man, you know, they could they could feed the whole street. Wow! And their gardens looked beautiful, and they were always in the garden working. It was their 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 pleasure, and I never shared it. And now I'm into it, and I've got I'm amazed how much more observant. I've become of the weather, of the season, even in six months. But most particularly, I've become very observant of the soil because where I put my particular nursery was a handy place to put it, but had the worst soil I discovered when I started to dig around. And so I've had to compost and manure my soil, and I've become very aware of the soil and I, I recently did a big drive and I love farming and watching farmers and the scale of it, but I couldn't help but look at their soil compared to my little wee plot and it seemed sterile. Like when I went over to it, I actually had a look and you'd sort of pick it up and it was just a substance to me, 
and it was sort of like something for putting plants in and holding them up. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I'd composted and manured my soil, it's alive. Yeah, yeah. And, and I wonder, I wonder, you must have a big view with your understanding of fungi, what's happening to our soil? Well, I think what we're often doing, Rodney, we're turning soil into dirt. So it's a good way of putting it. Dirt is the mineral components of soil, the inorganic, the non-living parts, the, the particles of silicon or sand, whereas soil is the mineral components plus the biology, so plus the fungi, plus the plants, plus the invertebrates. And what we're doing when we compact soils, we constantly disturb them through tilling or digging or other mining or whatever. When we when we make them toxic through the overuse of fertilisers or other chemicals, when we overwater them or when we use fire inappropriately, what we do is we revert soils back to dirt because we lose the biology. We, because we, we change the conditions and that fungus or that beetle or that plant can't live there anymore because it's now too saline or it's too nutrient-rich or it's too, you know, heated through, through fire, we actually are losing soils and reverting it back to dirt. And so I think now I get very inspired, Rodney, when I work with regenerative farmers or horticultural students or permaculturalists and they're actually trying to maximise the biology in soils and bring dirt back to soils again. So I think it's an interesting time because we've lost a lot of that biology. Yeah, a lot of our soils are dirt or sterile was the word you used before. Mm. But I think that's turning around. We are in a bit of a fungal awakening or a fungal moment and people are recognising that if we want to keep living here, we want to keep growing nutrient-dense, rich food, we have to think deeply and comprehensively about our soils. And that uh, nutrient-dense uh food of course is a big thing in the human diet and uh i'm a great follower you may not have heard of of western a price who studied uh traditional diets he was able to travel the world in the 1930s and still discover uh people uh living uh traditionally you know eating like they'd eaten for hundreds of years and his observation was this nutrient-dense food and as compared to, say, um, flour and sugar, um, where it was just calories. Yeah. And you do wonder, don't you, that we're sort of growing our cabbages and, and, and potatoes in this barren soil where we are providing it with the correct chemicals uh, as we understand it, that they need to grow and look good, but not necessarily the nutrition that a plant might need, which is this complex complexity of the soil that we don't quite understand. Absolutely, and I think we're often driven by economic imperatives to of produce course. Yeah, and you can't you can't blame a farmer right they've got to of live. course and look this is not about blaming anyone at all it's no. just a reflection on how things have changed in time but 
if you think you said a moment before we put the right chemicals on, but typically what we put on is what we commonly refer to as NPK, nitrates, phosphates, and potassium. Yes. But a plant that is growing with fungi in its root system rather than putting on these additives, it's bringing back more than NPK. It, it might be bringing back manganese or selenium or boron mm. or other things. And so this is why we're losing nutrient density or nutrient integrity because we're just putting on some additives, whereas a fungus gets the plant a much broader suite of different nu- nutrients and minerals that it needs. So I think there is this return to more traditional methods where we actually don't till or we don't put additives or we don't over-irrigate, and we're trying to bring back the fungi to do that work. And the other wonderful benefit of that is the hip pocket. I mean, how much does irrigation cost? I mean, the astronomical price of applying fertilisers, whereas if we get the fungi back in the soil, they not only give them a broader, give the plants a broader suite of nutrients and minerals, but they do it better than us putting on the, you know, we think we know what they need, but I think, you know, and I know this is very hard to do on an industrial scale, you know, we're so mm. now it's really hard to change, but if we don't start somewhere, we're going to wind up in really big trouble. But it's fun to do at home. Indeed. And and, and you can do, do, do it at home. And the interesting thing is it's the similar thing to how for many, many years we lived in, if you were sick, you took a pill. And, um, you know, you needed a pill for this and a pill for that and, and the rest of it. Now we're, we've become a bit weary of the downside of always popping a pill to fix us. And in a funny way, thinking that you need some nitrogen or some potassium or some, what is it, magnesium or whatever in your soil, rather than looking at your soil as an ecosystem, as an ecological system that's providing nutrition to your plants, just like you get nutrition to your body. And I'm thinking here of how we've discovered in the last little while, literally, the huge importance of the biology of your gut. Absolutely. And you can... and I think there might be some, would there be, I mean, there'll be bacteria and yeast in your gut doing a very important symbiotic job. Absolutely. And I think we can broaden that out from, you know, the human biome to the, the ecological systems as yes. well. I think there's similar logics in how we understand the importance of diversity and maintaining, you know, that, that wonderful diversity and state of flux in those systems, but stability as well. So I think it's a good analogy that you make. If I was to buy my wife one of your books. <laughs> Which one would I get? Oh, well, I guess it depends on her interest. If she is a forager and wants to be able to differentiate edible from toxic species, then certainly wild mushrooming would be the best choice. Would that if, work in New Zealand? It would. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure that Everything in that book, because many of the species in that book are actually European or North American species, and you've also got introduced trees over there, such as pines and spruce. And ah. So I think most of it, I, I'd have to check that, but I'm fairly convinced that almost everything in that book will work in New Zealand. Oh, wow. Well, so those sort, of, those sort of wild mushrooms and toadstools that we see, they are introduced. 
Many of the ones that we see growing, say, in the pine forest are introduced, and many of the ones in the paddocks are too. There is one called Macrolepiota clalandii, or the pyrosol mushroom, that I'm just wondering, that is an Australian mushroom. I'm thinking that one might not be in New Zealand, but I'd need to check that. You've probably got so to. So if they're into foraging, the foraging book is a good one. Yeah, but and if you if, like store, you go. Yeah, carry on. I was just saying, if she likes to be taken along on a journey through the forest, over glaciers, through grasslands, through all kinds of forests, including the forest in New Zealand, because there that are chapters like in New Zealand. Then I would say Underground Lovers is the one because I do very specifically talk not just about your wonderful forests, but also about the Māori knowledge of fungi. That's one mm. of the sections or one of the chapters. I look at Indigenous knowledge and I talk about the work of Peter Buchanan and some of the, the local elders and linguists who are actually trying to retrieve that Indigenous knowledge of fungi. So that probably would have the most relevance both geographically, but also it's a bit more digestible as a series of stories that take us around the world looking at these various themes about fungi. Mm. Now, i got to cover this because I'm sure you get it. Now, you take seminars too, don't you? I run forays, workshops, seminars, yeah, all kinds of different events. So if there was a group of people who were interested in having a get-together and having a day or two or a few days, they could contact you and you could organise for them uh, an introduction and a seminar on fungi. Absolutely. I never need an excuse to come to New Zealand. I was there earlier in the year and I would there you be go. absolutely thrilled to go out in the forest. Because that, that would be wonderful. And uh, are you getting an opportunity to get into schools or high schools or universities and talk to students? Look, I work certainly a lot with various universities, both in Australia, Europe and America. So I'm, mm. I'm working broadly across right. different universities. I, I've got very, very fortunate, Rodney, I get mostly requests from conservation groups, even things like I did a workshop recently with a group of emergency department hospitals and toxicologists to look at, you know, problems with issues with poisoning through fungi. So I work across a very broad spectrum Mm. of people. Sometimes it's chefs and foragers who want to know which species they can forage for their restaurants. Other times I work a lot with photographers. I spend a lot of time running workshops, helping them work at how to capture fungi the best way with the cameras and phones. So I, I try and work across quite a broad demographic of people. I had a I had an image of you crouched over a fungi with an umbra, uh, an umbrella and a flashlights and 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 because your pictures are so stunning that um, I just had an image of you catching that little fungi like you're taking a uh, a studio shot or something. Is uh-huh. that how you do it? Look, I, I after years of carrying ridiculously heavy camera bags full of gear, I'm now very minimalist. I do all my fungi photography, fungus photography in the field. Unlike some people who like to have their studio set up where you can control lighting, I like to use the ambient lighting. I'm literally lying there in the undergrowth with the ferns, with the camera, on the tripod. Nice. And yet it's hard. They're a hard subject. They don't always smile on cue when you ask no. them. And often they're in the wettest, darkest, most leech-ridden parts of the forest, but it's tremendously satisfying when you can capture their exquisite beauty or bizarreness. And, and I, ha- I, I have never watched any of those nature. I don't watch TV, so I've never watched any of those nature shows. 
like Richard Attenborough and all the rest of it. Plus, I find them very dreary whenever I've seen a snip of it. But have they ever done a show, an episode on fungi? Look, I confess, Rodney, like you, I've never in my life no, watched television, no. but there has been a few recent programs come out. There was one called Fantastic Fungi by, uh his name, Schwarzen, oh, Schwarzenberg, I think his name is. So we are now starting to see mm. some full-length films, some shorter documentaries. There's lots on YouTube and Vimeo now about fungi. There's also a fungus film festival run out of America every year. So certainly they are capturing the imagination of <laughs> still photographers and filmmakers. Now, I'm sure you get this question all the time in your seminars. I have a lot of weaknesses and <laughs> failings, but... One, thank goodness, that I haven't got is for drugs. I've never taken drugs. I've had no interest ever in taking drugs. I sometimes think that if I got to 95, I might pig out on cocaine or something just to see what it's like. <laughs> um, because, you know, there must be something in it. But like I've never, I've, cigarettes, drugs, I don't drink alcohol. Um, I used to, but I don't now. But there's all this talk about magic mushrooms and are they, what's that? Are they, is that a, a, something that comes off a particular mushroom? Okay. So in a nutshell, the term magic mushrooms refers to a group of fungi that all contain what is, I guess, technically a neurotoxin, but it's a psychoactive or an hallucinogenic substance. So there's various different fungi that contain these chemicals, and we've known about them for thousands of years. They've been used by all kinds of different cultures and societies around the world, often in initiation ceremonies, often in different things to try and, you know, elicit a higher state of consciousness. So it's nothing new, you know, that everyone from the Aztecs to the Berserkers to the Sami to different cultures all around the world have known about these what we call entheogenic properties or hallucinogenic properties. But more recently we've come to recognise that this great suite of chemicals can also be of tremendous medicinal benefit and, and most mm. particularly with mental health challenges such as post-traumatic stress disorder, end-of-life angst, depression. And so a group known as psilocybe, a genus known as psilocybe, is now being quite intensively researched as to how it can be administered to people who have some of these mental health challenges. So it's a very exciting time. For a long time they've been stig you know, stigmatised because we've seen you know, the whole 60s magic mushroom era of the you know hippies of, of America and whatever. So they were banned and illegalized, but now things are changing. And it's, it's a very cutting edge time where this whole fungal awakening extends to not just recognizing their benefit and ecosystems, but the great utility in terms of food and also medicinal pharmaceutical use. Okay. So these druggy hippies, they would head out into the bush or a paddock looking for mushrooms. Absolutely. Wow. And, I mean, I was out there today just before, 10 minutes before I came on with you, I was out and... And you got high. I get high, like you, Rodney. I just get high <laughs> walking around the bush. I don't even need the mushrooms. No. I just get so, you know, enlightened and thrilled being there. But the most common fungus I saw was psilocybe, which is a very popular one here, I imagine, in New oh. Zealand as well. But you also have to be aware that these things are... Technically illegal, so yeah, I'm not an expert in this field. And but they could I'm, kill you too, right? Well, the, this probably won't kill you, but if you mistake it for another mushroom, 
There's one, for example, known as the funeral bell. If you have enough of those, they'll kill you. So if you mix up the magic mushroom you're looking for with something else, it could certainly kill you. But even without killing you, for some people, these magic mushrooms have a, a wonderful effect. For other people, it can go the other way. Like the same with other drugs or alcohol, as you suggested yes. earlier. Like, just depends on your and, particular, yeah. And when I was a kid, I don't, I mean, we could get mushrooms in a paddock once in a rare moon and have mushrooms at home. But it seems now that there's always mushrooms in the supermarket and a variety of mushrooms in the supermarket. So the growing of mushrooms, I don't know whether it has just become a thing in New Zealand and it always been a thing elsewhere, but it's quite a, must be quite a big crop now, mushrooms, yeah. for eating eating purposes. And I think you're right. I think that generally it has been, yeah, a little bit slow to catch on to the wonderful benefits of fungi. And there is a real wave of, for various reasons, people wanting to grow mushrooms at home and whether they're trying to avoid the monopoly of supermarkets or whether they just love that thrill of seeing, you know, how quickly they emerge. Also, people moving away from meat. I mean, of course, fungi don't have the amount of protein of meat, but they certainly have textural and flavoral similarities. So I think there's a whole range of reasons why people are growing mushrooms at home or seeking gourmet mushrooms in farmers markets and supermarkets. So it's a very interesting time. Well, maybe that's my next thing. I'll sort, <laughs> out, I'll sort yeah. out the fungi on my beech trees. And I've put up a wee tunnel house, and I should investigate growing some mushrooms, not the magic types, just the ones that you can have in your sauce with your steak. Yeah, um, and they're not hard to grow. Oh, really? No. Oh, how interesting. Because oh, well, you that's can, wonderful. People, there's all these suppliers now who supply the substrate or the growing medium that has already got all those conditions right and they've basically impregnated them with the mycelium already. So they've they've done all the legwork for you. You don't have to work at all. What's there the, you go. So, and that's it's just my, so satisfying. That's my next thing. Alison, what a treasure you are. Oh, and, thank you. And, and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge we didn't get into your experiences because i imagine you've had some exciting times uh wandering the world looking at fungi every day is exciting ronnie yeah every day going to uh, the forest there's something new to discover so yeah have you got another book planned look i um I, i've actually got an american version of underground lovers coming out called meetings with remarkable mushrooms so i've just been working with chicago university press to to americanize that text and that one will have images in it as well so i've just got to finish that one off that comes out in september and then after that i need to have a yeah think about is there another book i mean you know venturing around the world with mushrooms i could tell stories till the end of my life because they're pretty, right. they're pretty oh, good fun, but... well i imagine when you americanize a book you just misspell certain words and that does it. <laughs> Huh? Well, you also, yeah, but then you contextualize it with a audience. Alison, thank you so much. Please tell us again your surname. Okay, so it's Pulio with a silent T. How do you spell it? It's P O U L I O T. And it's Alison with one L. Alison, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Reality Check Radio. It's been wonderful having you on Real Talk. I know listeners would have. Um, loved hearing from you or oh, if you want to drop a note 
to Alison. You can send me a text at 2057 and I'll pass it on or inbox at realitycheck.radio or uh, look up her webpage, have a look at her books. They're beautiful. They make wonderful, wonderful presents for that hard to think of uh, heart. You know, there's people that are so hard to get a present for. Uh, this would be a winner for sure. Uh, you're on Reality Check Radio. It's been Alison Pulley. I hope I get that right. It's been wonderful having her on. Uh, stay tuned. We've got more coming. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, we've had uh, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson from the Business Initiative on, and we now have the director, Oliver Hartwich, and we're going to be talking to Oliver about a truly shocking article that he wrote. And in many ways, I think it might be the most important article written in recent years. And this is what we're going to be discussing with Oliver because what he says needs to be said and needs to be heard. Good morning, Oliver. Good morning, Rodney. I want to uh, tease our listeners a little bit by reading your first four paragraphs. And they say this. I'm teasing them because we're not going to go straight into the article. We're just going to tease the article, and then we're going to talk about the business initiative and you. The article was originally called by Oliver From God's Own to the Devil's Playground, which I think is a wonderful title. And Oliver says this, The world thinks of New Zealand as the land of the long white cloud. Renowned for its stunning natural beauty and resources, it is considered an island paradise, or God's own, as they used to call it. But that was a long time ago. And not just because most Kiwis have since turned their backs on organized religion. Instead, today's instead, today's New Zealand feels like a country that has conspired to make itself poorer at every opportunity. If someone had put the devil in charge of New Zealand's politics, the outcome could hardly have been worse. That's what Oliver Hartwich writes, and he's very quick and properly so to explain this isn't attack an attack on the present government. It's an attack on successive governments and what has happened over the years. This is what we're talking to Oliver about today. This is a very important article. Oliver, lovely to have you. Great to be with you again. Now tell me, what is the business initiative? Well, first of all, it's called the New Zealand Initiative. Oh, it's a thing to aren't I terrible? Yeah, aren't I the well, worst thing in the world? <gasps> as long as you don't call us the New Zealand Institute, it's okay. 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 <laughs> I won't do that. <laughs> no. Um, the New Zealand Initiative is a think tank. It is a business membership organization. What's a think tank? Well, a think tank is an organization that shouldn't actually have to exist because we are doing the jobs that universities used to do, that journalists used to do that politicians used to do, 
that bureaucrats sometimes used to do but no longer do. So we think. We try to come up with new ideas for public policy issues, and the idea is to make the country better. We are a business membership organization, but we are emphatically telling our members and our prospective members, this is not for you. We're not making your companies better. We're not improving your bottom line. You might benefit from what we say in the long run, but so will everybody else, because our target is actually to make this country work better. And that could be in making the education system work better. That could be in reforming planning and housing. That could be in improving infrastructure delivery. It could be in all those ways in which New Zealand currently doesn't perform well. That's where we are thinking. That's where we are doing our analyses. And that's where we're trying to promote them then to decision makers, to journalists, to the wider public. So the idea of a think tank is actually to improve the lot of the country. It's an idea that goes back to Britain in the 1940s and 50s, that's where the first modern day think tanks really originated. Think of the Institute of Economic Affairs, that was one of the driving forces behind Margaret Thatcher's revolution in the late 70s and early 80s. So this is the rough idea of a think tank. We are a bit unusual in that regard because we are business funded. Most think tanks actually uh, go fundraising for individual projects and they're typically funded by some high net worth individuals. In our case, our funding model is a business membership organization but it is emphatically not a lobby group. We've got enough of them in this country and they're doing a good job and I've got no problem with lobby groups, but we are not one of them. We are actually there to make New Zealand better for all New Zealanders. And you're called the New Zealand Initiative. If I'm, um, what would be a typical business? Would it be a family-owned business, a corporate? Um, what sort of businesses typically get behind the, the New Zealand Initiative? I almost slipped the New Zealand initiative. And why would they sign up? Well, we have all sorts of different businesses, but the majority of our businesses are indeed corporates. And to sign up, it's very simple. If you are a large company, you pay us $50,000 a year. If you're a medium-sized or smaller company, the fees are reduced, but basically you get the same. You help us develop our policies. And that's why they sign up. They sign up because um, they think, it is important for the country to do well, because when the country does well, all businesses in the long run will also do well. So they're doing it out of, well, for lack of a better word, a sense of corporate social responsibility. I don't actually generally like that phrase. But in this case, they are trying to invest in debates that make the country work better. Mm. And would you say that your bent is to the free market? Well, my personal bent is clearly to the free market. I consider myself a classical liberal, mm -hmm. and I would say most of my colleagues do as well. That said, we're quite a diverse team in, our, in, the, in its, itself. So we have um, a few economists working here, of course, and I think they broadly share my free market inclinations. But we also have um, a historian here, a political scientist, psychologist. So it's, it's quite an interesting diverse team and a good team. Mm. And... When you describe yourself as a classical liberal, what's that? Well, that is someone who basically believes in freedom, the power of freedom, who doesn't like the state that much, who actually believes that markets generally find better solutions, who believes in decision-making that is bottom-up and not top-down. And it is something for me actually driven out of a personal experience. I mean, you would never pick this up for my accent, of course, but I am German by birth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, really, yes. Perfect um, Kiwi I, accent. Well, I've got a New Zealand passport as well. Ah, good. 
Anyway, I was born in 75 in West Germany. And that was a time, of course, when um, my home country was divided. So we had the perfect example, actually, of one country with one culture being divided in the middle and one half functions broadly under a free market system and the other one under communism. Then you wait 40 years and you see what happens. It was a perfect and, example, wasn't it? And I grew up there and I was lucky enough in 1988 to visit East Berlin just for a day, but just to see it myself. And basically that vaccinated me for life in that way against this communist virus because I've seen mm. it. I, I could see how terrible it was. It left a lasting impression on me. And East and Berlin was the showcase. East Berlin was the showcase. Well, I can tell you, actually, when I um, had that day there, I traveled with my parents and uh, we visited friends in East Berlin. Uh, the experience just going to a supermarket was shocking. Uh, mm. So one example, I mean, you had to cut um, the slices of bread, of loaves of bread yourself. Um, you know, when, when you go to a supermarket here and you see whole chicken, it typically comes neatly packaged and the wings aligned. And in East Germany, I remember the chicken had their wings in all sorts of directions in the freezer and it looked just weird. I had the weirdest watery tasting ice cream ever from a, an ice cream shop in Alexanderplatz, so another showcase square actually in the middle of town. And everything was weird and there was police on every corner and the colors were different. You come from West Berlin and everything is colorful in mean, a typical Western city. And then you go, or you went rather, to East Berlin and you saw everything was kind of beige and gray. And as I said, with surveillance on every corner, that had a lasting impact on me just seeing mm. it. So I, I did the same thing in 1981 and just a day in East Berlin, but I spent many weeks in other um, Eastern Bloc countries. But the thing that hit me in 81, was the fear yeah it was absolutely. palpable it was palpable and i as a kid had grown up reading the reader's digest and all these terrible stories about communism and i never believed it and when i crossed that wall i went across happily and the people were scared and they were scared of their government and that to me was an inconceivable concept. And I'll never forget, it was, I was like you, this changed me forever. I'll never forget walking back and seeing the American flag at Checkpoint Charlie and holding my New Zealand passport and thinking, this is the most wonderful thing I possess because I can leave. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I know that feeling. And the feeling when the war finally came down. Yes, so we, November we 1989. I, I was in Germany. I was in West Germany, glued to the television, of course. And um, it was something we, we didn't see coming. We didn't expect because it looked so, so final. You know, it was such a, I mean, you've seen it. it, it, it you, when you saw all the brutality of that regime and all the, fortifications around the border you could not imagine that they would just fall overnight but they did and it was the most wonderful liberating experience and one of the happiest days ever in german history yes oh and in the west's history and um the idea inconceivable that you'd have a wall with guns on it to keep your people in 
Yes. And, uh, and, and to and, separate German families. Indeed. And these are the tragic human costs, and um, they are absolutely terrible. But on top of that, of course, it's an economic experiment. Yes. Where you can see, actually, you have a country with one common culture. You divide it. You let it work under different systems. And after 40 years of doing that, one half produces Mercedes, probably the most luxurious car brand in the world, and the other one produces Trabant. And Trabant. I think that is probably a nice image. It's the difference between two economic systems in a nutshell. Yes. The other thing I found striking was actually in East Berlin, you know, in the West, we have prices that usually end with a nine because it's marketing, right? Yes. In East Germany, there were all sorts of prices. You could buy a postcard for 27 Phoenix, or you had a museum entry for one dollar or one mark and 35 or 34 or whatever else it might be. And it just showed, actually, these were not market prices. There was no marketing behind it. This was just a result of a plan. So yeah. the whole economy was planned. Nothing worked. There was fear everywhere. You really had to see it to grasp it. I mean, you can read a lot about it in history books, but unless you've seen it, you probably wouldn't fully understand what the system was. The one that struck me too, funny enough, because I couldn't speak German and I was on my own finding my way around, is the value of advertising. Mm -hmm. Because you know, you you can be in West Germany and you can figure out what a shop is selling, but I couldn't figure out what shops were selling or tried to sell in East Berlin because there's no advertising. It was just beer. Everything was just bleak and beer. And it felt like World War II had just ended, you know, because nothing had happened since almost. And, and why would you advertise when there are no products to sell? No. When they had bananas um, in East Germany, um, that didn't happen too often. Um, it was basically word of mouth. Um, oh, they've got bananas. Let's just go and basically empty the shop because it was such a rarity. Actually, what they made us do at the time as West Germans visiting, we had to exchange 40 West Marks into 40 East Marks. Exchange rate one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, the East, East Mark was basically worthless. Um, the actual exchange rate would have probably been one for 10 or one for 20, something like that. Mm. But they needed the hard currency, of course, the regime. So they made you change it. And so we were left with these East Marks for our family, you know, trying to figure out what to do. It was really hard. Mm. But um, the, the only thing we found actually at the time was vanilla shorts, probably from Cuba, <laughs> because they traded with all their communist-friendly countries but nothing else in the shops he really wanted to buy. He didn't buy a Trabant to bring home and keep? Well, the thing um, was, actually, I would have had to wait probably for 10 years because yeah. that was the other thing. If you wanted to have a telephone connection or a car or anything like that, you had to register your interest and then you had to wait 10 or 15 years. And the despair. Yeah, and also the back to the fear, actually. This knowledge, of course, that there is the Stasi constantly looking over you and keeping a, a record on you. Um, I can tell you another funny anecdote. Actually, my dad was a policeman in West Germany. They um, had training um, for police officers in a West German city called Münster. And for that, they got um, police officers from the whole country together, including West Berlin. And West Berlin, of course, was part of the Federal Republic, so part of the Free West. But to get to that seminar, the West German police officer had to travel through East Germany on a transit route. There were three transit routes that West Berliners and mm -hmm. West Germans were allowed to use to get them through the territory of East Germany. So anyway, he um, attended the course in West Germany. He set his final exam on a Friday. And then on Friday afternoon, he went to travel home back to um, West Berlin through East German territory. So he arrives at the German-German border. 
And the border guard looks at his passport and says, oh, so you turned that police training course. Yes. Congratulations, you passed. But you know what? It's um, it's a nice story again because the Stasi was everywhere, not just in East Germany, when, but of course in West Germany as well. So 1975, 10, you were 14 or so when the war came down. Yeah. Was Ronald Reagan's speech significant to a West German? It was. Um, it was highly emotional, of course, but frankly, when he delivered it, and it was about a year before the wall actually fell, Mr. Gorbachev opened this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We all thought, well, he's crazy. What is he talking yeah. about? Yeah. I mean, this is yeah. permanent. This is here forever, and this will never go away. It's, it's very nice that Ronald Reagan talks about this, but nobody thought he was realistic. No, same. And uh, we just thought it was a bit of political rhetoric. And um, it's fantastic rhetoric, great speech. Fantastic rhetoric. And what an what an amazing president in hindsight, hugely underrated at the time. Mm-hmm. And um no, I just it was that speech I can recall that speech and thinking, oh yeah, that's good for everyone at home in America, and you know, um nothing's nothing's going to change because that wall was such a physical manifestation. It was so permanent. The guards, the guns, the dogs, the security, uh, terrifying. And as you say, what an experiment. One country, one point of time, divided in half, two systems. One, broadly capitalist. One, savagely communist. I mean, they did have prices, but savagely um, following the model. And yet, everywhere you go, capitalism bad, socialism good. Unless you grow up in Germany. And by the way, I I must say, these experiences we make in our teens are absolutely shaping us for life. I I read about it um, a lot. No matter where you grow up, whatever shapes you in your teens and maybe early twins, that is basically you for the rest of your life. You cannot really escape from that. In my case, that was shaped by the fall of the wall. That was shaped by the rise of globalization, by this whole atmosphere that led Fukuyama to claim that this is the end of history and we've reached the final stage. Mm. So this basically is my mindset. And then I happened to study economics at around the same time, too. So you can kind of imagine where I'm coming from, quite literally. Mm. Well, when that wall came down, I wondered what I was going to do with the rest of my life, because by then I had become like you, a classical liberal, and I thought, "Oh, we're there, right?" Mm-hmm. And it was like the end of wonderful history. times. Yeah, the end of history, and we had it had. By the a, way, I didn't believe it. I didn't really believe the end of history. I must say. Yeah. Well, you see, I sort of did. Not the end of history, but I thought it was just going to be. We were heading into the sunny uplands of peace and prosperity. Yes, no, I I felt optimistic. I felt totally optimistic, but I didn't quite buy it that this was really the end because, I mean, as we know, history always continues. Well, and you're German, so you have a long history. We New Zealanders have a short history, and we we don't have a a, a great sense of... But you know what? I mean, to to be German, of course, it's a bit, bit of a mixed bag when you think of your history. There are some really impressive things about German history. Um, and I think the most impressive one actually being the fall of the wall and the peaceful revolution for yes. freedom. 
But I mean, we don't have to talk about the negative bits. We've got plenty of them and plenty of things to be ashamed of. So, um, yeah, when, when you know history, um, you know. But you see, I'm serious about this, Oliver. You shouldn't be ashamed. I hate this guilt of your ancestors. Um, you've done nothing wrong. Uh, no it's German. Not a, it's not a personal shame. No, well, you shouldn't even feel shame. Uh, I'm serious about this. You're no more responsible for what happened in the past than I am for that what happened true. in your past. But we are and, responsible for ensuring that it never happens again. Sure, but we all are. Yes, but that's another thing, actually. I think that you take from your upbringing. You, you know about your country's history and you know what to avoid, what to fight for, what to cherish. Yes, no, indeed. Um, tell me, Oliver Hartwich doesn't sound a very German name. But it is. Really? Yes. Hartwig is a very common name, actually, in Germany. Typically spelled, I would say, in 80% of the cases with a G at the end instead of a CH. Okay. And Oliver, actually, in the 1960s and 70s, was the most popular voice name in Germany, believe it or not. Goodness me. And that's a German name? O Oliver clearly is not German. Uh, that was imported from England. Okay. But um, Hartwig is certain. Oh, Hartwig, by the way. I'm, I mean, I've got all sorts okay. of pronunciations in England and New Zealand um, of my name. I got used to all of them now, so I respond to all of these different versions. But it's actually Hartwig. It's this CH sound that only seems to exist in the German language. Mm. Now, let's go to this, because the war came down in 1989. Um very, very significant. We'd had the 80s where we'd had Ronald Reagan, um, Margaret Thatcher, we'd had Roger Douglas and David Longy, and a new generation uh, was taking over uh, and looking forward to a free world, free markets, peace. Uh, the USSR fell to bits. And we were complaining because it wasn't going fast enough. And then we come to your article. And it's an astonishing article, Oliver, and I want to commend you for it because it's a big picture piece. And it's a hard article for people to read, I think, because it's highly critical and nonpartisan. And I think the difficulty that we've got with our politics here and around the world is that our criticism of government policy is partisan. And what you're pointing out here is that the slide is systemic. And you're not identifying why we've had that slide, but you're giving examples of the slide. And the example that you give is housing, which is a good one. The most Let's, obvious one, I thought. It's an obvious one. And let me just say this. So when I was a kid, you could leave school at 15, drive a truck or get an apprenticeship, get married, put a deposit down and buy a house, have children, and within 30 years, you'd own your own home and be comfortable. And you'd be doing that on a single wage. So that's in my lifetime. That was just 
In fact, growing up, I thought, how boring, right? That is a dream. That was God's own. That was the God's own of which you speak. The half gallon, the half gallon quarter acre Pavlova paradise, where every man and his wife could own their quarter acre section and have their kids running around the backyard. That now is an impossible dream for our young people unless they've got a mum and dad with money or property. Yes, and that is a social scandal because social scandal. I don't generally like the word social justice uh, for reasons which you would understand. Yeah. But if there's ever a thing, an incident of social injustice, is it is this. Yes. Because we have a whole generation now that is collectively poorer than their parents because they cannot reasonably aspire to home ownership in the way that their parents did. No. And as I point out in the article, it is entirely self-inflicted. And well, by let's, the way, just, let's just stop on that. We're going to get to that. Yeah. So this this lack of home ownership, the ramifications of that are everywhere. Yes. Right? Because obviously there's a whole lot of things going on in terms of young men and young women not getting married and having a family. But one of them is the inability to have their own home. And it is also a huge political and economic ramification because we have a great swath of New Zealanders who have no economic stake or political stake in the country. They, the, historically, you'd get a mortgage and you'd become well, more conservative, more stable, um, more rooted, more grounded, uh, more responsible, all those things of being an adult. And we look at it now, and we've got 30-year-olds living with mum and dad, having a succession of boyfriends and girlfriends, um, maybe having children, maybe not, changing jobs. No stability or commitment and no political stability and commitment. So this shock, oh, and then looking across and seeing a classmate whose parents owned a house and therefore, or two houses, and therefore they're on the property ladder. This is a huge political and economic division. Yes, and it's not the only negative effect. It also limits the ability of New Zealanders to move to where the best jobs are, because you might be locked into a place and you can't afford something else. Yes. It um, delays family formation, as you mentioned. It cements um, inequalities in society, also, as you mentioned. And it also limits the choice, for example, of schools, because as long as we've got school zoning and the best schools have the highest property prices next to them, well, guess what? Um, we're locking people away from the best schools. And so not only that they are poor, but they also can't afford to move to a place where their children might actually get a better education that would get them out of that cycle. Mm. So an unaffordable housing market has all sorts of negative implications and, for society. And we've created the equivalent of a landed gentry. Yes, 
we've also made our whole economy dependent on property prices. Yeah. So the yeah. development of the economy <laughs> is correlated very closely with um, property prices. So if property prices go up, we feel richer, we probably borrow a bit more against the value of our property, release some value and spend it. And if um, property prices fall, well, the whole economy is in trouble because people might be negative at equity, they might be missing out on mortgage payments, consumption goes down. So the whole economy swings and sways with the property market. It's not very healthy. And it's not from an economics perspective, the place that you want people to be investing like it's a business. Yes. Um, I've heard that so many times. Oh, we don't really have that much in retirement savings, but we're saving in bricks and mortar, meaning um, we've got a massive mortgage. So yeah. actually, I thought, sorry, but that's not saving. That's actually debt. And yeah. when you look at the total amount of private debt in this country, I mean, government debt is still comparatively low compared to other developed countries, but private debt, jeepers. It's, it's a real concern for New Zealand. And of course, people like me, economists, we've been saying this for over 20 years, and of course, we're the fools because people have made more money out of investing in housing than they have working. Yeah, because as an economist, you can't say when this will end, but you can be pretty sure that at some stage it will collapse. Yes. So let's go back now. That's that's this huge drama because it's not just house prices. It's, you know, having the kids still with you. You can't kick them out. It's it's kids not being born. It's families not forming. It's, it's people not growing up um, and being politically and economically responsible. Uh, all this is happening. It's creating a huge division in society. How come in, in the 1960s, a working man on a single wage with a wife and three kids could afford a house in a new subdivision? And in 2023, wouldn't even bother looking. What's happened? Well, I think there are many reasons for the decline in housing affordability. Um, maybe to start with a non-economic reason first. I think we had a change in culture. So back in the 1960s, there was still an attitude in New Zealand quite widespread that you know problems are there to be solved and development is something good and economic growth is something to strive for. I think what's happened in the last few decades is actually that we have developed an anti-growth mentality. We don't like growth. We see problems everywhere. And actually, one of my colleagues here at the initiative, uh, Matthew Birchwell, a historian, is just uh, finalizing a report on the history of infrastructure development in New Zealand, and he's documented that quite nicely. So uh, just to give you one example, that's had nothing to do with housing, the Auckland Harbour Bridge. I mean, that was an achievement that was celebrated with a public holiday when it was completed. They composed mm. a song to celebrate the Auckland Harbour Bridge, and they were really celebrating progress in a way that we don't do anymore. So I actually think that um, once upon a time, you know, whether it was the first walker arriving or the European settlers, they looked at a country where there wasn't much infrastructure <laughs> because they yeah. were new. But they didn't turn around and say, oh, this is all terrible. Let's go home to where we came from because we can't make this work. No, they actually arrived on these shores and they get, got cracking. They got stuff done. And, and they saw that there was, for example, in Wellington, this mountain range. And, oh, maybe there are some planes behind that. And, oh, let, let's build a tunnel. And then they built a railway tunnel through the Remotaka. 
nowadays, can you imagine? Oh, God, we probably find an endangered frog species somewhere, and yeah. then we have to deal with a community, and it's costly, and then there are planning delays. And climate change. And safety and climate change and whatever. And in the end, oh, it's, it's probably too hard. And if it happens, then it might take 20 or 30 years in planning stuff, and then the implementation will be botched and um, nothing will work. And nobody seems to care that much anymore. Whereas I think in previous generations, there was much more of a can-do spirit. And, you know, there's an obstacle, whether it's a mountain range or a harbor or whatever, let's just cross that. Let's deal with that. Let's build it. Let's move this country forward. So I think this first thing is actually a shift in culture. Is that a Kiwi thing or across the West? That is not a Kiwi thing in particular. I see exactly the same development in Germany. Um, in Germany, they tried to build railway stations and it found some endangered beetle species. I'm not making it up, by the way. And this whole project, which was more than a billion euros, got delayed in Stuttgart. I'm talking about Stuttgart Central Station. And in Australia, you find that as well. I mean, talk to Nick Cater. Nick Cater wrote a wonderful book about it almost a decade ago called The Lucky Culture in which Nick explains that Australia once got stuff done. They built hydro dams, they built all sorts of infrastructure projects, and nowadays it seems inconceivable because of all the naysayers and all the concerns and all the regulations. So New Zealand is not alone in this respect, but I think it plays a massive role. So culture. But on top of that, and probably linked to that, we have some other developments in this country which are really holding us back. So we are following the British tradition of town planning, and actually, my first job in Think Tankland was almost 20 years ago in London, actually working on the British Town and Country Planning Act. Same kind of development copied here. So it's plan-led development. We have effectively nationalized property rights of landowners. We've put planners in charge. So you might nominally own the land, but actually that doesn't mean you can, can do with it whatever you like. You are always dependent on a planner. In Britain, it's the Town and Country Planning Act. In New Zealand, we call this the Resource Management Act. comes down to the same property owners are effectively expropriated. And we have a nationalization of development rights. And then you put a planning class in charge of it. And the planning class um, has been trained in all sorts of things, but not economics. And so they plan whatever they think is right. And then we get weird things, for example, like needs tests, where planners then try to do, decide whether a new supermarket, for example, is needed, mm. as if we could leave this to the market. Mm. And on top of that in New Zealand, I think we have something else, which also plays a role, by the way, in Britain. By the way, just pick up on yeah. that. This, yeah. is, this is something we can gloss over without seeing the stupidity of it. But you have planners, and I recall an instance in Auckland where I think it was 10 years, where they were arguing over whether a supermarket was needed. Ikea, yes. Yeah. Ikea, was it? It was and, Ikea, and I remember the case because it ended up in the environmental court. Yeah. And the court, believe it or not, decided that Ikea should not be allowed to open because it would be so popular that it would cause traffic chaos. So <laughs> as, an economist, be, as an economist, it, you look at this and you hang on. This is a supermarket that you think will be successful because people will want it, and they will want it so much that they are willing to queue in the in the streets and go into a traffic jam just to shop at IKEA. And because of that, because people really want it, we won't let this happen. Crazy, and yeah. Totally. And and this is this craziness that needs to be constantly thumped along. Like it won't. Oh, we're not sure whether we need a supermarket. And you're looking at it and you're thinking. Why would a supermarket business 
build a supermarket that wasn't needed. And there's a kid with a geography degree writing planning reports with no no capital at risk, no ability to build something, Mm -hmm. stopping it. And And at the same time, of course, we have politicians and planners complain about cost of living. Yeah. So they say, oh, this is terrible. There's not enough competition in in the supermarket sector or in in furniture retailing. But then when somebody wants to enter the market, you say, well, actually, no, sorry, you you would cost too much traffic. Then you have consultation. Yes. You have So So the whole thing is very bureaucratic. We know that. I mean, anyone who's ever tried to get a building permission or planning consent um, knows how bureaucratic the whole system is. But there's one thing on top of that, and I think that is almost as important, and that is the lack of financial incentives for councils to actually approve development. What I mean by that is if you think about the development from a council's perspective, what does it mean? It means, okay, you first have to deal with the NIMBYs, the NIMBYs who don't like development in their backyard. You have to also deal with the bananas, you know, that build absolutely nothing anywhere near any one faction, big part of society in New Zealand. Then on top of that, you have to, of course, pay for the roads, for the infrastructure. You might have to build a new library, you have to build a new park or a new playground. All of this is costly. So you bear the political costs of dealing with people who don't like development. You then have to build extra infrastructure. You also have to explain to your local population that you're adding more pressure on public services with these newcomers. So all of this is costly politically and financially. The new taxes generated out of the development when it happens, the taxes, for example, in GST, the taxes from income tax from the new residents, the taxes in corporate tax from the companies that built the thing, they end up in Wellington. So we've got two tiers of government in New Zealand. One tier bears the cost of development. The other one gets the upside and the revenue of development. And then we're surprised that these tiers don't see eye to eye. And then we're surprised that councils don't like development. So first, we give them the tools in the Resource Management Act to really make it hard. And then we give them zero incentive to work around these development obstacles from the IMA. And then we're surprised that nothing happens. So I think it's a complete experiment, again, in self-sabotage. This country would have had the opportunity to build because we are not short of land. I point this out in my column. For every man, woman, and child in New Zealand, we have 42,500 square meters of land on average. And even if you include all sheep in the country, you would still get to close to 10,000 square meters per capita. So really, we are not running out of land. We are just not making it possible to build because we have made it bureaucratic. We have expropriated property owners. And we have also failed to provide incentives to councils to actually make this development happen. Are we surprised we have a housing market as unaffordable as it is? Mm. I'm, uh, I recall being in Australia and traveling across a desert listening to the radio. And there was a serious discussion going on on the radio about how Australia was running out of landfill space. Mm-hmm. Australia. Mm-hmm. Australia. Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> it's that the small biggest... island continent. <laughs> <laughs> And you're listening to this and you're thinking, I can't believe this, but we we confront a similar thing, don't we? We're sort of this constant um, propaganda of running out of something until we 
we believe it, you know, we've run out of land or there's no space or, you know, we can't do this. You're, you're running out of land. I think it was Milton Friedman saying that if you put socialists in charge of the Sahara Desert, you would soon run out of sand. Yes. So and, it's a bit like that. And by the way, you mentioned Australia as a place where they think they're running out of land. I mean, in Britain, of course, I heard the same. And what I found interesting was in Britain, they used 8% of the country for development. Yeah. And that included even urban parkland. So even in Britain, which is vastly more densely populated than New Zealand, um, it was only 8%. And the New Zealand figure is about 1% of the country used for development. Now, I mentioned if we increased the total amount of developed land in New Zealand by 50%, that would be 0.5% of New Zealand. So not much, really, but it would no. make all the difference for people who can't afford their homes. Because, as we know, the bulk of the price of a new home or um, an existing home is in the land, not in the bricks and mortar. So you have a think tank. You're an economist. You've got economists there. You can see it. I can see it. People listening can see it. We have politicians and local bodies and central government who get elected and they've got to win our vote. And they do that by providing what we want, which in this case we're talking housing, but it could be, you and I agree, it could be any one of a million things that have gone wrong. We have a bureaucracy which is cleverer and smarter and got computers and God knows what, like they never had back when they were building the Auckland Harbour Bridge originally. Can they see it? Well, it would take a certain degree of blindness not to see it. But uh, we have to ask ourselves, well, if it's so obvious to see, why do we still get these outcomes? And I think that really takes us to a question of incentives. Mm -hmm. If you incentivize councils not to build because it is not in their best interest to build, because it is costly, it takes time, it risks your re-election as a councillor or mayor if you are too ambitious in building plans, well, then guess what? It won't happen. So I think it's really down to the incentives that control our behavior in the housing market. And then, of course, what you do, if you run this system for a long enough time, you also build expectations. And the expectation then is that an investment in property will always be good in the long run because the market is so tight, you will make a decent return on your investment. And so you build an expectation of future house price increases into the system, and that makes it even more enticing for people to buy. It doesn't make it more mm. enticing for councillors to so, build or plan, but it does make it enticing to buy into the property market. So one improvement and this is a good thing uh, for listeners too, is that economists don't think in terms of solutions, which is what captures oftentimes non-economists, that it's natural to try and figure out a solution to a problem, whereas an economist tends to look at trade-offs and look at improvements. Oh, I, I think I have a solution for you. Oh, you have a solution? No, well, let's go to that. If you have an improvement slash solution, let's hear it. Perhaps I'm an unusual economist, but I think I've got a solution. Mm -hmm. So um, we should learn from does it involve uh, Does it involve sort of being Guy Fawkes and blowing up Parliament or something exciting like that? 
Well, I'm a classical liberal, but not an anarchist. Okay. And um, the only similarity between Guy Fawkes and me is that we're both Catholic. Right. So um, my solution, learn from countries that have actually managed to keep their housing market stable. In particular, I'm thinking of two countries that I know quite well. The one country is Germany, the other one is Switzerland. In both cases, actually, what happens is that councils that go for development can retain some of the extra tax revenue generated. And they can use that tax revenue to fund the infrastructure and also tell existing residents that development is a good story. Whereas currently in New Zealand, of course, as I explained before, it is the opposite. We're leaving the councils and local communities with a cost. We are not compensating them for development. We're not compensating them for the loss of amenity and therefore nothing gets done. So why don't we learn a lesson or two from, say, the Swiss, where councils have a local income tax, where they can keep some of the revenue from new development, from new residents, and therefore development once again becomes a positive story, where councils are in favor of growth because it pays for them rather as in New Zealand, where growth is a net cost and it doesn't pay and you try to avoid it at all costs. And how does that work here? How would that work here? Well, um, there are many ways in which you could implement this. The simplest way would be to say, as the ACT Party does, we take the GST from new development and we take that revenue and pass it on to councils and leave it to them and to fund the infrastructure with that revenue. That would be a relatively straightforward thing because you can calculate quite easily how much GST is generated out of a new build. You can also do more complicated versions. You could actually start to perhaps take a share of GSD generated locally, or you could actually measure how much um, extra tax revenue is generated out of a local economy that growth, and you can take some of that and actually pass it back down to councils. You could have a wholesale tax reform. You could introduce local income taxes as they have in Switzerland. There are many ways in which you could do this. The most important thing is at the end of it, there should be a financial incentive for councils to go for development, because otherwise, they will use every tool in the toolbox, which is the IMA, to block development because it's not in their interest. So let's say I'm Auckland Council and I allow a little subdivision to go ahead. Well, mate, let's make it a reasonably sized subdivision to go ahead and it'll be 100 houses, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, what does the council get out of those 100 houses? At the moment, it gets nothing. It just gets a whole lot of headaches That's because right. the neighbours complain. They've got to do the roads up. They've got to provide sewage, water. Um, they've got more people bitching and whining. Where's our school? All the rest of it. But uh, what you're saying is we can incentivize a council to allow a subdivision with those 100 houses. So if those 100 houses go ahead, let's take the ACT policy. If those 100 houses go ahead, what does the council get? Well, it depends on what the houses cost, of course. Well, let's say they're a million each. Well, okay. Then it's 100 times a million, and 15% of that would go to the council. 50 That's million. Massive, that is a massive chunk of money. 50 and million. 15 million, yes. Wow. 15, 15% of the... Oh, so one, five. One, five. One, five. One, five. I got 50. Percent. One, yeah. No, no, the GST. Yep. Basically, you take the GST, you earmark the GST, and you pass the 15% back to council. It will change the behavior of councils. And I can tell you because I have done the research. Um, yep. That was my first think tank project in London for policy exchange. 
almost 20 years ago, and I traveled around Germany and Switzerland, and I talked to mayors, and I talked to councillors, and I tried to figure out how things work there. Because if you look at it on paper, these two countries look like not too dissimilar from Britain, because they also have planning rules. They have of course. Yeah, plans, yeah, yeah. they have building codes, they have all the kind of legislation in place that you would also see in countries like New Zealand or, or Britain or Australia. But what they do have are the incentives. And so in Switzerland, there's a local income tax, and in Germany, there is a more complicated scheme. But basically, it means that councils know how much an extra resident is worth to them. And when I talk to councillors and mayors in these two countries, you could see the euro signs or the Swiss franc signs in their eyes because they could almost calculate down to the last euro cent how much. And it would be, it would typically be a similar amount, like 15% would do it. Um, depends. I mean, in Switzerland, of course, it really depends on the canton and on the council because each council in Switzerland can actually raise its own income tax mm. and it can also set its own income tax rate. So there's no general figure I could give you. It really varies. There are about 2,000 different tax regimes in Switzerland. Mm. But it is a substantial enough amount to incentivize councils to go for development where in New Zealand that simply wouldn't happen. Yes. And it's your observation that incentives matter even for politicians, and more particularly for civil servants. That is exactly right. And why should it be any different? We have known this, of course, in economics, and, and you know that as a fellow economist, um, we've had public choice economics since the 1950s and 60s. And that was driven by people like Gordon Tullock and James Buchanan. Um, the idea there is quite simple. E economics previously thought, okay, once you take an otherwise self-interested individual and put that person into a bureaucracy or into parliament, they will suddenly become enlightened and work for the greater common good. And then these economists in the 50s and 60s said, well, hang on, um, they're totally self-interested, normal individuals, human beings in their private capacity as consumers. Why would they suddenly become angels when they work as bureaucrats or politicians? That's not realistic. And so what they did was they modeled them more like normal human beings. People are people, no matter where you put them. And suddenly they realized, actually, once you assume that bureaucrats and politicians are self-interested, you can probably explain their behavior a lot better. And so for a bureaucrat, obviously, they would like to get a promotion. They would like to get a bigger office in the end. They would like to have a bigger budget. And so they behave accordingly. And a bureaucracy has an inbuilt tendency and desire to grow itself and sustain itself. That's not a particularly novel um, invention, really. I mean, we've known this actually for centuries. I mean, there uh, is mm. literature even going back to the 17th and 18th century um, documenting that. But actually, in the 50s and 60s, it became part of economics. And for politicians, of course, the incentives are pretty clear. I mean, you as an ex-practitioner in the field, you would know that you would like to get re-elected. Mm. And then once you're elected and in parliament, you want to be in government. And then you try to become a minister outside cabinet and then a cabinet minister and perhaps eventually prime minister. So the incentives are relatively clear there too. And so whether you do stuff that actually works for the country's real interests, ideally that would be nice. But actually, first and foremost, you think about your own career and how you actually remain in the business. Mm. And so once you actually put that perspective in and you try to model how does that drive political behavior, how does that drive bureaucracy's behavior, and then as an economist, what you try to do is you figure out, well, can we actually shift the incentives for politicians and bureaucrats in a way that whatever serves their self-interest also works for the country? Because then it would actually be a good thing.
It's a great point um, to bring it home. I'm living perched precariously in Arrowtown in a rental apartment, and there's no housing. There's a huge housing crisis in uh, Queenstown and Arrowtown. People are crying out for staff. Uh, I personally know of a dozen people who are working and sleeping in their cars and tents. And you can imagine we're freezing every night down here now. And these are young people, you know, who um, are tough and they're not hobos. They're working, but there's nowhere for them to stay for no amount of money even. Uh there was a proposal to put in a large workers' accommodation development in the perfect spot, but it was a little out of Queenstown, and it would mean driving into Queenstown and coming over the Shotover Bridge. And the council refused it because they were worried. <laughs> yeah, God forbid. The reason for opposing it was that people would drive across the bridge and it might get congested. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a bit like the Akio story. <laughs> yeah. So um, you're sitting there thinking, well, build a bigger bridge, right? Or do something. Just don't say no. And now the council's running around, of course, all worried about the housing, quote, shortage. And so the council's spending money on emergency accommodation and whatnot, and all the politicians and bureaucrats are, 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 are sort of wrenching their hands what to do, and we care so much, when it's a direct consequence of every decision that they've taken. And what you're saying is if they were able to secure that 15%, they could have done something, get a loan, extend the bridge to the benefit of everyone, and look to a winning formula rather than a zero-sum formula, which is they build those houses and then we have to spend more money doing up the bridge. Hang on. If we allow those houses, we will have the money to do up the bridge. Yeah, exactly. It's just one of these examples of how New Zealand self-sabotages. And that was the point behind my column, just pointing out that we do this quite systematically. We need to get a lot better at um, aligning the incentives for bureaucrats and politicians with the common good. Now, here's a question for you, Oliver. You wrote this article. It is. Um, for people who are interested in what Oliver has to say, and you should be, uh, go to the New Zealand Initiative webpage, and you'll see their policy papers and their reports and their opinion pieces, and you'll see this wonderful article by Oliver, From God's Own to the Devil's Playground. And it's this political cultural slide where we tend to see our problems as individual issues, <clears throat> not as a, a comprehensive systemic problem. And so what Oliver's done here is looked at that and he's given examples rather than saying, here's a particular problem, why do we need to fix it? He's looking at the big big picture. And it's a hard article for a Kiwi to read because we want to be God's own. And we're not, 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 we're a long way for that, particularly for our young people. And this is starting to address it. So please go to the New Zealand Initiative and read that. But here's the thing. 
Did you submit this to the New Zealand Herald, Oliver? No, I did submit it as my regular column to the Australian newspaper. Would it get would something like this, in your experience, get picked up by the New Zealand Herald? Yes, actually it does, because I have um, occasionally written pieces for the Herald as well, and I don't hold back there either. So you think that New Zealand is up for this conversation? Well, it should be, because if you care for the future of this country, you need to be honest with yourself. There's no downside to the truth. We have to just face up to the fact that we are not as good as we would like to be, or that we, as we once were. By the I way, love, um, I love your sunny optimism. Well, it would be irresponsible to give in. Um, there's nothing more irresponsible than defeatism. We are here. We have our families here. We want to make this country succeed, and we have to work towards it. We can't just give up and say, "Look, last person switches off the line. We're bugger off to Australia." Mm. That, that, that is not a solution. The solution really to New Zealand's problems actually starts with a good and an honest analysis. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to just say things as they are. And we also sometimes have to slaughter a few holy cows along the way. And actually, I wouldn't mind a mass grave for holy cows in New Zealand because there's so many of them. Um, so talk about foreign direct investment. We are really hurting ourselves by having one of the most restrictive foreign direct investment regimes because some people believe that otherwise we become tenants in our own country. This is nonsense. We have to get a lot better when it comes to our education system because it simply doesn't deliver. We have more than 40% of our school leavers leaving school without the ability to properly write or read or calculate. So functional literacy is a massive problem. By the way, it's massively skewed towards the lower deserts. So if you're coming from a disadvantaged background, the chances of you getting a school education that will help you progress in life are even slimmer than for the average New Zealander. We have problems in practically every area of policy. I mean, our infrastructure seems to be a bit of a disaster. I've never seen so many potholes in my life. Um, our health system is falling apart. I recently had the pleasure of visiting an A&E department, and I was just shocked by how crowded it was. Not just the reception, but once you were in, there were beds basically on the floors everywhere. This country doesn't work anymore. Our ferries are breaking apart, and I think it's now a quarter of the inter-islander ferry journeys being cancelled. We had the slow-go trains in Auckland and Wellington recently in Wellington because there's only one car, one, one train car actually, able to measure the tracks, apparently, for the whole country, which really surprised me. So name one area of policy that really still works. We talk about ourselves as the country that is or once was God's own. We talk about the number eight wire mentality and we'll somehow make it work and she'll be right. We, we talk about uh, a world-class system where we still believe, oh, it's kind of, okay, there are some problems, but it's kind of world-class because it once was. And we celebrate uh, our great achievements in the past from you know, Edmund Hillary to Ernest Rutherford. So we've got our proud moments in our history. But none of this should detract us from the fact that this country currently doesn't perf perform. It doesn't work. And for that, I think it requires a degree of honesty just to acknowledge that, because without that honesty, you have no chance of reforming. You first of all have to admit you've got a problem. I mean, that's basically how anonymous alcoholics start. They first have to admit that there's mm. a problem. If you don't admit that to yourself, you can't find solutions. And in that sense, I think it is a patriotic duty to now be really honest with the country. It's not rubbishing the country, but just stating the obvious, we've got a problem. And we can all see it. 
Yes, and there's no denying it, except if you look at recent opinion polls, my impression is that many people out there still don't quite get the severity of the situation. I mean, they're at the moment looking 50% likely to return a government that, in my view, hasn't actually delivered on any of its promises. Mm. Are you a practicing Catholic, Oliver? That's a scoop. And I ask this genuinely because you have a commitment to truth. And yes. what one of the, I'm finding my way to Christianity and to Catholicism almost because I find myself living in a world without values mm-hmm. and I hate it and without principles. And I love your commitment to truth. And that's a funny one too because we find in our school system the idea that you each just have your own truth. Whereas if you're a Christian, you have a belief, but you also believe in a real world. You believe in an objective world. You believe in knowledge. You believe in right and wrong, true and false. And when I'm interviewing you, this comes across very strongly. So to answer your question, yes, I'm a practicing Catholic. Well, good for you, because I think, um, and good for you to owning up to it, because I think that's wonderful. And when I hear your commitment, I hear that strength of value and purpose coming through. And funnily enough, what caught my eye was that God's own to the devil's playground because I'm not getting into the sort of metaphysical, but you sort of do feel that we have lost our way, not just in terms of understanding good policy and distinguishing it from bad policy, but we've lost our way in terms of a commitment to progress a commitment to truth, a commitment to critique, um, and we can all just have our own lived experience. So having a hard debate like you're giving is quite, if I may say so, quite jarring these days. It is a problem, I think, in New Zealand, having proper debates because we are lacking a debate culture. Mm. What I mean by that is that we are often self-moderating. And I think it's not a recent phenomenon. That's uh, something that struck me really for the whole time I've been here, which is 11 years now. In other countries in which I have lived, um, there was a greater willingness to confront other people with different ideas. Not in a personal way, not in personal text, but just saying where you disagree and just spell Mm. it out. In New Zealand, we try to moderate this away too much. And I've been struck by that and I've wondered why that is. My best explanation is it's a smaller country. There is a high probability that you will meet again, that you will have friends in common, that um, maybe your brothers uh, went to school with one another or you know your cousin and you work together and you you always can trace it back, and we know this as the two degrees of separation phenomenon. So you don't want to fall out with people also because you know you're likely to meet again in a different function, maybe. 
So you can't burn your bridges, and that's why you moderate. You never quite say what you really mean. When, a, mm. when, when, when I meet potential members and I say, oh, this sounds exciting and wonderful and we should talk, I, I know this means no, uh, because we're calling it again too. So there is a problem with that. And I think we need open debates and I think we need open disagreements, uh, not in a personal way, of course. We have to be polite. We have to be considerate. This is not ad hominem. It is just saying what you mean and really stating your positions quite clearly. I think that's the first thing that we need, and then we can discuss different ideas. And by the way, the other thing I would like to see, I think we should also accept that most people, and I really mean 99% of people, even politicians, probably mean well. They probably think that they are doing things that is right, even though um, objectively it might not be. So we should actually give them that. I think we should um, even grant our opponents, it's a very Christian way of thinking about it, grant them um, that they might want to do the right things and then mm. st start to engage with them on on policy issues. I'll give you an example. I think what this current government does and what the Ministry of Education does on education is terribly flawed to the point where I would say it's almost criminal what they're doing with our children at, at, at school. And yet I don't doubt Chris Hipkins, for example, that he cares for education. And actually, I know that he cares for education because he comes from a household. I mean, his mother was a lead researcher in the Council of Education Research. Um, she was one of the architects of the curriculum and the NCA assessment system. And now we can say, okay, none of this works. The curriculum is terrible. The NCA assessment system doesn't work. But that doesn't take away from the fact that actually he comes from a household that cares for education. And Hipkins cares for education. And I've actually met with Hipkins on a few occasions and discussed education with him. And I know that he cares. So, no attack on Hipkins for not wanting to do the right thing. Just a debate with him and his party on how do we get there. I actually think that there is no party in Parliament that wants to see unaffordable housing. Of course they want to see affordable housing. We have to recognize that there are incentives that keep them from achieving that goal. And they probably also have some weird ideas, some of the parties on, uh, that don't work from an economics perspective. But I would grant them um, the goodwill. I think well, how how wonderful is that? And you're a, a, a role model for me because you you choose the hard path, and I often now find myself choosing the lazy path, and which is to just dismiss the whole show and in frustration. Whereas you're prepared to grant and see the best in people and to work with that and to present your arguments. And I was going to say with the missionary zeal, because it is a sort of missionary thing that we have to do because yeah. you keep going and you keep going and you keep going because what is the alternative? And you are building up a body of work and a body of understanding which will stand the test of time and eventually that Berlin Wall does come down. Yes, and if, well, you mentioned the missionary zeal. There is a nice parallel, actually, in early Christian history, and that's St. Paul. So St. Paul traveled, of course, around um, the eastern Mediterranean and tried to 
spread spread the word and the belief. And he encountered some communities, of course, where they had lots of gods. And they always had one statue dedicated to the unknown god because they were terrified that they might miss one uh, in, in all their <laughs> worship. And so they had one for the unknown god, just in case we missed someone. And St. Paul turned up to these communities and says, well, that's mine. <laughs> and the <laughs> wonderful thing, that. <laughs> But the wonderful thing here is actually there's a principle in that. You try to find out what people really care for. And then you try to explain to them that actually the solutions that you might have would probably work for them too. So, for example, when it comes to housing, we know that people on the kind of green side of politics care for environmental features in housing. They want to see everything properly insulated, energy efficient, maybe with a solar roof on top. That's what they care for. Well, if you care for affordable housing, you could actually argue your case to someone from that part of politics saying, look, I know you care for all of these environmental features, but have you ever thought about it this way? If you are a first-time buyer, you're trying to get your first home, the housing market is really tight, everything is ridiculously unaffordable, you wouldn't even think of environmental features. Your first and probably your only priority is to ensure that you're somehow able to afford that first house. And then everything else comes afterwards. Whereas in my world, in which housing would be generally more affordable, even first-time buyers could think about environmental features, mm. about efficiency features, mm. maybe even about decent architecture. So you try to get people from where they are, what they care for, and you try to find a common ground with them. And that's how you're building coalitions. And by the way, you say it might be a Christian way of thinking about it and to always assume the best. I think it's also something that results from psychology. Not sure if you've ever come across Jonathan Haidt. Yes, indeed. Yes, that's basically the story from the righteous mind. By, yes. good, by good people are divided on politics and religion. That was the subtitle of this book. It's a wonderful book that I recommend to yes. all your listeners. Because what he actually points out is actually he's had his own journey from the American left to the American center, maybe center right. And he documents, on based on his research as a psychologist, that actually people typically believe um, they're doing the right thing. They people typically believe their own positions. We've got our own mental and psychological biases, and we have to overcome them. Mm. And um, Hyde actually has one example in his book of a convicted murderer who still argues after being convicted of murder that actually he was only trying to do the right things, and he, he didn't find himself guilty. And Hyde actually argues in this book then if even a convicted murderer still tries to justify his own behavior, what will we do? I mean, we haven't murdered people, typically. We're doing all sorts of things that might not be quite correct, but we always have the inner lawyer justifying our actions. Mm. And Hyde actually points out what you should do is actually you should find your own flaws, you should find your opponent's strengths, and you should try to find common ground, and you need to challenge. And in only in, if we're doing that, where we overcome the polarization in society, which is starting in New Zealand, which is much more progressed in the United States and other parts of the world. But I would rather like us to get back to a position where we can talk to one another again and try to find better solutions for the future of this country. Well, that's a wonderful place to end it, Oliver. You have given us a tour de force on policy and economics and the housing market, but also that system systemic change that has occurred in New Zealand and 
we tend to look back at the what it was like and see the symptoms now without necessarily seeing the cause. And then you've also done for us, uh, given us a good Christian look at it, where we improve ourselves, we look for the best in others, and we engage in critical dialogue rather than divisive uh, attack and dis- dismissal. All of that is should be music to our ears, Oliver, because it gives us hope and optimism. And uh, that's how I feel. That's what I need because it's very easy to get dismal. So I appreciate it because I feel perked up. Um, I would love you to come back, Oliver, and share with us more. We've got a big listenership. And it's fair to say that our listenership have become very disillusioned with where New Zealand is heading. We're often confused. I'm speaking for myself about what has happened. We find it hard at times to understand what people are thinking, that they would do this, for example, to our kids in education, why they would be teaching what they're teaching, and we tend to think the worst. So you've given us a good message, and I hope you'll come back and be on our show. Again. I'm very happy to come back. I'm very happy to give you more hope. And I just hope that um, we might have encouraged a few listeners to think a bit differently about politics. Um, don't Absolutely. go down the path of just being angry because it's so easy. But yes. try to be angry more constructively. Yeah, well, I'm. And, and try to have debates more constructively. Try to disagree more constructively. I'm in the angry phase, but you're helping me. You're shifting me. I have been speaking this morning with the wonderful Oliver Hart, which I think that was a tonic for me, and I hope for you, because it's very easy to look at it and think, oh, everything's so bad, it's so terrible, and there's someone trying to be reasonable. How stupid is that? Because the people that we're dealing with, none of them are reasonable. And yet what is our alternative? And what will succeed, most likely? And it's well to remember, as you look across history, at the things that do change, that you think could never change. And there's no greater example than that horrid, evil wall that divided not just a people, but families, and kept a people trapped, imprisoned at the point of a gun. And then one day, it came down. And if something like that, something so fundamental, so powerful, with such force behind it, could just come down, anything is possible. And that's why Oliver Hartwich, the New Zealand Initiative, that are free to think, they're a think tank, Free to offer up ideas are so important just now. And I I I stress, do go to their webpage. And if there's a particular area that interests you, look into it because you'll find a sober analysis. And also you'll find a factual discussion of the issue at hand, just like we had 
uh, on the housing market, housing market as an example. You're with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Reality Check Radio. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, Send us a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Please do. I'm going to read them out if you let me. But they mean a lot to me. And I pass them on where relevant to the guests, and they mean a lot to the guests. And I don't identify you. I just send the messages, and you'd be amazed. Um, Because we're building up a community, aren't we? Speaking of which, I had some friends visit at the weekend, and they were friends that I never knew. I didn't know them on Friday. I met them on Saturday. And we were instantly great friends. And I met them again on Sunday. And we were instantly great friends because they were introduced by a mutual friend as freedom lovers. And it was so wonderful because while we came from very different backgrounds and different experiences and different views, we all knew that the lockdowns and the mandates were so wrong. And we spent the weekend having coffee, eating, laughing, and discussing it and trying to understand it. And I think they thought I would have some special answer because I had been a parliamentarian. And the truth is, I had to admit to not understanding it either. It is totally beyond my experience what we've been through. Totally beyond my experience. And so I'm as bewildered as anyone. I was looking at Parliament not understanding it. And after they left, I've been thinking to myself, I'm a great believer in moving on, like looking forward, not back. And bad stuff happens. And I tend to focus on the good that I see. And I don't like getting bitter and twisted. And I love just looking forward to the next thing. But I realize that with the COVID story, I literally can't move on. I'm sort of on replay radio, like the record stuck. And it troubled me, and I, I and I thought about it, and I think it's still so raw, what I saw happen to my country and to people here that I love. And more particularly, I've got so many unanswered questions. And now it's like it didn't happen. But I still got the questions. And I truthfully don't know the answers. And I'd love to understand it. I'd love to know. But there's now a wall of silence about 
the COVID experience not to be discussed. But I've got questions like the lockdowns. Did they work? Like, I never understood the lockdowns from the start. In fact, I said they're not going to last two weeks. People aren't going to put up with that. But they did. In fact, they seemed to love it and want more because they were scared. But looking back on it, did the lockdowns work? Did they achieve anything? What made our political leaders think it was a good idea? What did they read that told them, oh, lockdown, that's it? Or what advice did they receive? And those advisors, where were they getting their information from? And looking back on it, do they still think it was a good idea? And why did the opposition not do their job of critiquing the government of the day? and providing that yin and yang that a Westminster parliamentary democracy is supposed to provide, that supercritical stance that keeps the government on its toes. And why did the journalists and the media just fold in behind? Now we know there was money and all the rest of it, but why? Why did the journalists give up even the pretense of digging into government decision-making and finding out what was going on? Why did the media become just a propaganda sheet for the one source of truth? Why were the schools closed? What Kids actually weren't at risk. Teachers weren't at risk. We knew that before the schools were closed, but they were closed. Why? Why did young mums with toddlers have to stand out on a painted dot outside a supermarket waiting to go in to buy food? Who decided that essential workers could work but no one else could? And did essential workers die like flies? Were they put at extra risk? No. What, what? Don't we have to ask these questions? And that's why I can't move on, because I look at it and I think, this was horrific. Was it? To me, I didn't suffer especially, right? But I suffered in my head. Because you're looking at it, reading about it, and you're thinking, none of this makes sense. This is just a huge cost that's going to carry on for generations. And it's going to fundamentally change New Zealand. And it did. Once I realized it wasn't going to last two weeks, it was on there forever. What was the logic of social distancing? Two meters, keep your distance. Like, that wasn't about not getting sick. Was it just about control? Remember, they'd have the seats, and you'd have to keep away from each other, and one seat would have to be vacant. And what was it with the masks? <laughs> People walking around the streets with masks on. People pretending that if they put a mask on in the supermarket, they'd be safe from a respiratory virus. 
We knew that wasn't true. You know, common sense knew it wasn't true, let alone the science knew it wasn't true. And yet over and over and over, this was pushed till you're sort of scratching your head. And you walk through shopping malls and airports and they were just masked up. And people screaming at you if you didn't have yours on over your nose. I remember catching a train in Auckland and I think I was late. I was the only one on the train and the guard came running down, crossed three carriages to get to me to tell me to put my mask on. There's no one else in the train. Deep cleans of supermarkets. What the hell? And then this vaccine. What would ever make you think it was safe and effective when it had never been tested? Why would you sign up for that as a country when it was so novel? A new substance going into bodies and indeed a very uh, cutting edge technology that is, you know, my question with the vaccine was, well, how much of that spike protein am I getting? Oh, I don't know. Your body just makes it. Well, how much does it make? Oh, I don't know. How long does it make it for? Oh, I don't know. Isn't that a spike protein going around in my blood a problem? Oh, no, no, it's inert. Huh. So this virus is that's making us all sick has got a big blob of protein on its head that's inert. So what makes us sick? How do you know it doesn't go around? How? This was just nonsense, and they could look down the camera and they could tell you so soothingly, it's safe and effective, just get the jab. I've got questions. And maybe I'm completely not understanding it. So explain it to me now. Now that the panic is over, please explain it to me. Go back to 2020 and just explain each step and what happened. I'm not in the attacking mode or holding people necessarily to account or calling for a new Nuremberg. I just want, first of all, to understand it. Because I've got questions. And I just can't move on. And this idea that we don't discuss it and just forget about it with the line that we were the best in the world at it, whatever it was, doesn't wash. No, I've got questions. The question's going to remain. I'm very, very sorry. I'm going to get on with my life, of course. I'm going to love, I love this radio station, but the questions are going to remain nagging, nagging and nagging and nagging. And the more we learn, the deeper the questions get, the tougher the questions get. And the more we learn, I notice the more those in power, the more those in the media, the more those that pushed the vaccine, the less they want to talk about it. <laughs> sort of tells me everything in a funny way. This gives me more questions. Text us, 2057. Email us, inbox at realitycheck.radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Reality Check Radio. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Oh, we have a wonderful mailbag this week, and I'm going to share it with you. Uh, the good and the bad. 
Uh, actually, it's all good, really. From Janice, I'm enjoying your conversation with Morris Williamson quite a lot. Lovely. I would, though, prefer if you didn't use words like castration to describe changes to physical gender. That description can be experienced as quite derogatory, which doesn't serve to enhance the open conversation you're facilitating. Oh, well, thank you, Janice. And I, do, I don't mean to upset anyone um, or to be jarring or derogatory. Um, I guess it is shocking, though, to me, and I sort of tend to use the blunt word because I'd value feedback on this because what do they call it? Um, Gender-affirming care is how it's described when, in fact, it's, you know, the other thing. I don't know. I sort of feel sometimes you just have to say it how it is, but I appreciate your and you, you give me pause for thought, Janice. Thank you. Uh, from Donna. I just want to say thanks for RCR. I have just lived through being an anti-vaxxer for the last few years, which was incredibly exhausting and confusing. My God, how we all know that. Now I'm living through an ideological era that I also disagree with for many reasons. The recent interview with Diane Landy was excellent and made me feel less alone. I have a nine-year-old still in their education system who I'm fierce about protecting from transgender ideology. Also, as a result of listening to Rodney Hyde's interview with Ewan McQueen, I am currently reading One Sun in the Sky. My goodness, that's a great book. A beautiful book. It makes you proud to be a Kiwi. Such wonderful people, our forebears, uh, great leaders amongst them. I'm finding the current state of New Zealand politics deeply upsetting, and it is incredibly important to me to hear articulate, intelligent, critical thinkers voicing similar opinions to my own. So thank you. It helps me to be less afraid to voice my concerns in my own community. Well, thank you for that, Donna. And we all feel the same. And we have all been shut down. And we have always, you know, we have now been isolated and kept apart and unable to speak and debate and discuss. Well, that's ended now because we have Reality Check Radio and what a difference it is making. Amanda, I'm with you, Rodney. Not one of the self-serving liars sitting in Parliament are worth voting for. I don't trust a single one of those politicians to have the interest of the people they're supposed to represent. There's no Labour, no National Party. They have shown to be one and the same. We have to use people power to exit the two-party paradigm and vote for the emerging party standing up for the rights of New Zealanders. I think so. For Madam. Hi there, team. Just listen to Rodney's interview with Mahalino. By the way, up until recently, was government by Jacinda's dad, Ross Adern. There's your answer, he says. Raywin, hi, Rodney. What a beautiful man Mahalino is, a gentle yet strong spirit. Wasn't he just? I'm so glad we now have him in our family here in New Zealand. May he be blessed. He will be blessed for standing steadfast. His story was confronting. I hope he writes a book. Love your show. Thank you, Raywin. Awesome interview, Rodney. Respect. Fabulous interview with Mahalino. Thanks, Rodney, for holding space for his story to be heard. Wishing his family the best, Tracy. One more for me. This man, his family, are my new heroes. The episode should be made compulsory listening to. Mandated. Lol. From Tom. Brilliant interview, Rodney. Amazing story. Thoroughly awe-inspiring. Thank you. Too right, Rodney. I'll never forgive. Mm, That was of our politicians put this terrible policies in place. Someone's just sent a text saying crying now. Yeah, I know that feeling. 
Mary. Hey, Rodney, I'm lost for words listening to your interview with Mahalino on his family's house arrest in the Tokelau Islands. This is a great interview, and Mahalino's outlook on life after his experience is extraordinary. I hope there are repercussions to come for all those who persecuted the unjabbed and the lessons are learned. And I wish all the best for Mahalino and his family. Thank you, Mary. Someone's texted and asked him about Ross Dern. And we have Paul. Beautiful interview, Rodney. God bless you and your guest and those supporting him. Indeed. It's a wonderful story about uh, people helping each other, isn't it? Here's a text. Where is the Christian attitude regarding the village treatment of this man? Religion doesn't help. You have to be born again, as Jesus said. What a shame. Well, they fell short, but we all do, don't we? But then think of all the Christian people that have helped him and assisted him and his family and stood with him. Complete strangers stepped up. And we've all experienced that in recent years where uh, sometimes our best friends and family have let us down and then complete strangers have helped us in a Christian way. Here's from Paul. Please give a link to donate for this man. Oh, I haven't organized that. And family to help them find their feel. It's the least I can do. Otherwise, I'm hopeless. Great interview with Mahalino Rodney. Thanks for the story. There's a question there for Wally. Hi, Rodney. Can you please ask your lovely guest what part Ross Adern played in the lockdown and why did Adern leave so suddenly? Yes, well, I didn't do that. I apologize. Um, to Mahalino, your courage and tenacity are an inspiration. Bless you always. And from Linda, I know what you mean, Rodney. Walking into the Wellington protest, I felt overwhelmed, like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders and that I was not alone. I was there on the last day and stood with an ex-police detective who pointed out many things. One of those things was that the people at the protest were grassroots New Zealanders, about a third Maori, and the majority of the rest generational Pākehā. He told me that in the last 15 years he'd been roughly one million immigrants to New Zealand and they would not fight for our freedom. For some months I could not talk about what happened. Even now it is incomprehensible that such a peaceful, loving people were treated the way they were. Please don't read out, just for your information. Oops. Hmm. Oh, well, I do apologize. I don't know what I, how I did that. Um, here's more. Uh, from another, Linda, thank you, Rodney. I super love your interview style. You dive deep with the people you interview into their personal history, which makes the interview that much more powerful. You want to know deeply who you interview. Such an authentic style. I appreciate you much. Oh, that's so kind. Thank you, Linda. Well, I figure that when I was in politics, you'd get an interview and it was like five minutes squeezed up between the ads. And you just have to say these staccato questions would come at you and you were allowed a sentence or two. And then a next question would come at you staccato and then you'd get a sentence out, and then it's time for an ad. And it was very unfulfilling in terms of understanding. And you'd know maybe what people want to say, 
but not why, if you know what I mean. And it seems to me we have an opportunity now with Reality Check Radio to understand people. And like, we learned so much more about Mahalino, knowing about him growing up in the Tokelau's and then coming to New Zealand. If you just started off with the house arrest, it would be sort of diminished and you'd have questions in your mind. And even when you stop, that was a two-hour interview. Even when you stop, you, people still have more questions. So thank you for that support, Linda. Claire, this interview was fascinating. I loved every minute of it. Long but worth it. Hubby said this was an excellent interview. We'll definitely be having a listen. Thanks, Rodney. That was from Hayley. Uh, almost finished listening to this interview. What a lovely man, a beautiful family. So despicable how they were treated by the council and the people they had lived with for so long. Just shows you what groupthink and cognitive dissonance can do to people. Just abhorrent people. Ever th they ever thought it was acceptable or justified to exclude us for refusing an experimental gene therapy. Glad they're safe now, no longer under house arrest and eating one meal a day. Brilliant interview, Rodney, your best yet. Oh, thank you. Excellent interview from Vicky. Thanks, Rodney. Hard to imagine treating anyone so disgustingly. All love to this amazing family who stood for their beliefs and values. Where is the human rights in holding people hostage for 14 months, no less? Scott, the interview made me want to cry. And what family dynasty was in charge of Tokelak? Yes, them again, says Scott, the Adurns. Phil, never ever forget what the government did. Never forgive. Retribution is going to come. Thank you for your uh, texts and emails. Please keep them coming. Text 2057, email inbox at Radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And thank you for listening. And thank you for emailing and texting because those beautiful heartfelt messages make it so worthwhile and make us all realize we're not alone. We're not the only ones thinking like this or questioning. And there are a lot of us because. For too long, we thought it was just us looking at the world thinking, what the hell? But no, we're here, a lot of us. Funny, isn't it? It's like an underground radio. Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for tuning in. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. 
It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's been real talk with Rodney Hyde. What a great show. Uh, I found Oliver Hartwich from the New Zealand Initiative fascinating, and he challenged me. It made me think because... Sometimes I despair and I just want to throw my hands up and say everything's evil and they're all wrong. And there's Oliver with that wonderful Christian view of thinking the best of everyone and believing them to be well-meaning and coming up with things that they could do to make the world a better place. And that is so wonderful, and it does. It did pull me up with the start, actually, because I look at it now and I wonder. I wonder what the powers that be are thinking, the politicians and the civil servants, like whether they are actually bad actors, and everything's just a pretense that they're looking after us, or whether they're just responding as Oliver would have it to the incentives that they're in, trying to do their best, but. Um, being pushed around by voters, being pushed around by special interests, being pushed around by the media. The media there are busy trying to get eyeballs and clickbait, and they're writing, you know, stories that shock and horror and scare you to make you read them. And it all just adds up to a bad place rather than individual bad actors, just everyone sort of doing their thing as best they can and the incentives being so perverse that we end up in a bad place. It's certainly food for thought. I'd appreciate your thoughts on that. Inbox at radiocheck.radio, text uh, 2057. And then we had the wonderful Alison Paulet, and I just, I, I find nature so wonderful because it pulls your head out of politics, and it's sort of real and wondrous and beautiful. and has been going for so long and it's mysterious and yet science i mean not government science not science trademark science i mean inquiry human inquiry where we test our ideas against the real world rather than use our ideas against people but our ideas to understand the world and how we peer back the mystery of nature and get a bigger glimpse of it. And as we get a better glimpse of it, it becomes even more amazing and more of a mystery even because the more we discover, the more we don't know. There was a great saying attributed to Sir Isaac Newton, which he said he didn't know what he would appear to be to the future but that to himself, he thought of himself as just a small boy walking along a beach, amusing himself with a prettier shell or a smoother rock, while the great ocean of truth lay undiscovered in front of him. And so that's humility from a man that one summer invented calculus and basically gave us science and physics. And he realized that the great ocean of truth was undiscovered, and he was just playing on the edge. 
And that's how you feel when you start to think about and understand fungi and the ecology of soil and nutrition. And we pretend to understand it all, and we don't. It was a wonderful interview from uh, Alison. She's amazing. Uh, please send us a text, 2057. Uh, email us at inbox at This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.